Hello and welcome to the Weird Geeks Horror Channel, where every Friday we'll be covering a new installment in the classic horror franchise. Warning, this podcast contains strong language and spoilers throughout. Take a little walk to the edge of town and go across the track Where the viaduct looms like a bird of doom as a ship Go to weirdgeeks.com to check out our other podcast series, social medias, Twitch streams, contact details, and news on our very own feature films, albums, and shorts that are currently in production for our publisher, We Are Tessellate. Weird Geeks is not affiliated with any of the rights holders of the films referenced, and no infringement is intended. On a gathering storm comes a tall, handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand. Geeks. Geeks. Hello and welcome back to the Weird Geeks Horror Channel. Every single Friday we take you through another installment of classic retrospective horror franchise. This week we are dealing with the beginnings of a new franchise, Scream. I'm your host, Al White, and joining me throughout we are returning Alexander Chard from A Nightmare on Elm Street, Child's Play, and Star Wars Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm great. <laughs> That's almost too good. And returning from Romero's Living Dead and also the Star Wars podcast is Christina Masterson. Hey ya! Hello guys, we're all back, but not to talk about Padawins and fucking things in the blood and, you know, different edits with CGI changes. Wait, you're saying this movie wasn't a Star Wars release? I'm pretty sure it I was. I think it could be, yeah. <laughs> it's like a side story. Yeah. Or they're eventually going to get to. Scream, a, a Star horror, Wars a horror story. Star Wars film. That'd be kind of cool. I'd love a horror Star Wars film. That'd be fun. No. No, come on. <laughs> I want different genres in Star Wars, which is sort of what they're trying to do. But like, yeah, let's do a slasher film in Star Wars territory. Very happy to have you guys back for a new franchise. This one's going to be a short one. We just finished The Purge. That was four films. This is going to be four films as well. And in a wrap up, we will be talking a bit about the Scream TV show because it's not canon, but it is a part of this whole thing. And Wes Craven was involved before he died. But don't worry, guys. No look of fear. You both only have to watch the pilot episode. I'm watching the whole fucking thing. So, How yes. many seasons is it? Two seasons so far. MTV, Two. though. Oh. So it means, you know, little things come up at the bottom of the screen whenever there's music on to tell you, this is the song you're listening to. That's oh, it really? really? I... Really? Everything on MTV, whenever there's oh a fucking God. song on in the TV show, it comes up in the bottom to let you know what song you should go buy. Wow. Is that I, their I way of reminding people that they started MTV shows. as a music channel? Yeah. <laughs> they started off as, you know, music television. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> fucking idiots. Remember then MTV2 tried to reclaim what MTV originally was, and then even that got destroyed. Yeah. Anyway, we're here to talk about Scream. Our first 90s franchise. I mean, we've hit the 90s before, but this is our first one starting from the 90s. And I think that might be why we're all involved, right? <laughs> Yes, that's exactly why I'm involved. We're all 90s kids, other than Alex, who is still 19 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so, when we get into the first episode, these ones go on a little bit longer because there's some preamble, but we also need to say where we are with the series. So, I'm a huge Scream fan. I'm a huge 90s slasher fan, which most horror fans, I think, tend to hate 90s slashers. They were too safe, I feel, coming out of the 80s where everything was pretty nasty. 90s were pretty clean, pretty safe pretty nice and i think it's frowned upon to really love 90 slashes however the exception to that rule is the first scream film which i think most horror fans will 
you know, agree is you know obviously a classic and it's impossible to really state just how important this film was at the time for kids listening now who maybe only know scream because of the tv show this was enormous and this revitalized the entire horror genre back in 1996 or in 1997 if you were one of the european crowds like me it was actually a christmas movie which i thought was kind of funny came out at christmas time it did uh, gotta love a christmas yeah. horror yeah Bob Weinstein yeah. really fought for that. He thought, you know, let's bring out a Christmas. And then everyone was like, it's going to die because people like to be with their family at Christmas. And he's like, yeah, so what did the horror fans watch at Christmas? And it worked out. Did it premiere on Christmas Day or just during Christmas season? It was the Christmas season, yeah. I don't think it was okay. Christmas Day. I think it was December something. So like okay. late December. I forget. But yeah, I've seen all four of these films many, many, many times. Uh, definitely, I think the franchise I've seen the most out of everything that we've covered so far. What about you guys? What are your relationships to the Scream series? Go, Christina. <laughs> I remember it as, I guess, a teenager or before. I'm not so sure. I can't remember when the first time was that I saw it. Because I guess it came out, what, when I was seven? Well, it was 1996. So you would have been 12, 11. Oh, uh, maybe, maybe you don't want to say. <laughs> I don't know. No, it's okay. Okay. I'm not, I'm not ashamed. Like, you're only like 12. I was 16. So I was a teenager. Okay, so yeah, 12. Yeah, okay. And I haven't, you know, I haven't seen it since. Oh, really? Yes, but I have like so many memories from it and rewatching it again, oh my gosh, was so interesting. So, and I remember really loving it when I was a teenager. So it was really cool to watch it again. Would, um, have you seen the sequels? No. Oh, interesting. I haven't. Uh huh. It's going to be fun. Okay. And Alex, what about you? Yeah, similar thing to Christina that this was, this came out just as I was hitting my teens and sort of going to the movies with friends without parents for the first time. So it's like really embedded <laughs> in that time period and those moments. And yeah, and it was the start of that sort of mid to late 90s slasher revival that I, yeah, which I was going to see at the cinemas. It was like the Scream franchise. I know you did last summer. I think Final Destination, Urban yeah. Legends, like all those kind of, I think they really fed off the success of Scream, which I'm sure we'll get into. But it's really sort of entwined in my memory of that period. So I, what going back and watching this, I realized, I can't remember the last time I'd seen it. So there were huge chunks that I'd forgotten, but I, the ending was very sort of, clear in my mind but a thing I realized was that because it was so iconic in pop culture and then obviously spawned the like spoof parody uh scary movie everything had sort of become blurred for me is like what had I what was <laughs> what would, what am I remembering from the scary movie films what am I remembering from the scream <laughs> franchise so yeah it was really cool revisiting this one what was interesting is that the I haven't seen scary movie but I guess I was reading up on this and that was that was one of the names like they were originally going to call scream scary movie yeah they were they were what you guys all knew that yeah yeah Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> good look at good reasons <laughs> have you seen the sequels alex yeah i think but i i can't remember which one's which i think it's going to be a case of sort of i will remember as i watch them even up to number four did you see then the no, one that was like way later that's the one i haven't seen i've definitely seen two and three i don't think i've seen four. okay Mm. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, you have so such great. a good memory, though. I wish I knew where I was when I first watched this. I don't think I was in the movie theater. I think I rented it at the uh, video store. 
I remember exactly where I was. Like I was, it was what the, the summer. Hell? I was at boarding school. My memory's school, so bad. Um, and it was the summer that I went to see from Dusk Till Dawn. And it came out in May, I think it was actually uh, in the UK. And I went with my friend James Duggins, which, uh, no, Duggins, James Huggins, sorry, James Huggins, which hey, for James. some reason he's listening. Hey, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and he and i was just getting into horror i'd never watched like horror until this year like this was the year that i started and I've, we talked about it in romero's living dead it was because of um the night of living dead and we went to see this film and we're sitting in the cinema and he literally at the, the first scene he grabs my fork and holds onto it so tight it was painful and then doesn't let go <laughs> for like the next 20 minutes he's just like gripping onto me in fear <laughs> And it is, it's easy to forget now. I don't know. I mean, we'll get into it if the film is still scary or not. But it was really, it was scary at the time, I feel, for a teenage um, audience. It's obviously quite tame nowadays. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, particularly that opening sequence. I remember that vividly uh, in the cinema. Okay, so before we get into the movie, we like to talk about the landscape of the year that we're talking about. So I believe with the top 10 worldwide highest grossing movies of 1996, we have Christina Masterson. You have a little list for us. Yes, I do. Okay, so number 10, we have Eraser. Eraser? Oh, that was an Arnold Schwarzenegger film, wasn't it? Oh, I thought that was a horror movie. I mean, it sort of was. It was terrible. I don't know. I didn't see it. I haven't thought about that film in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's number 10. Okay. Yeah, I can't find the info on it right now. I don't know why. It's not on my other list. So number nine, we have uh, Jerry Maguire. Oh, show me the money. I really like this movie a lot, actually. I think it's really lovely. I like this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like Cameron Crowe. He's a great director. Or used to be. Oh, yeah. is this the one where, you, where Renee Zellweger is like, you had me at hello? <laughs> That's yep. it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's really good. Really long as well. Like, very long film. I should rewatch that. I haven't seen that, too, since the 90s. Okay. Okay. So, number eight, we have The Nutty Professor. Ooh. <laughs> I, I remember bits and pieces of it. That's about it. Yeah, I didn't like it. I had this film on VCD. <laughs> VCD? Did you really? Isn't yeah. that uh, SDI? <laughs> <laughs> it cleared up right away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number seven, we have Ransom. Oh, Mel this Gibson. was a great movie. Yeah, I really like this movie a lot. Even though they Mel give away Gibson the twist in the trailer. And Renee Russo. Yeah, I think so. And it wasn't it directed by Ron Howard or someone like that? Or maybe not Ron Howard. I'm sorry, guys. I usually have all this information, but the separate lists I pulled up with the pictures uh, and all the Let's info go. aren't sorry, you've got, you've got us. Okay. This is a film. I do recommend, like, that's a film that I've forgotten about, but people should definitely go check out Ransom. That was really cool. I had this cool twist where the kid gets kidnapped. And this is a twist, like, this is the crux of the movie. So the twist happens very early on. And then they're struggling to find their kid who's been kidnapped and is up for ransom. So he puts out a ransom on the kidnappers. It's really fucking cool. Oh, double ransom. Double ransom. And then they put out a kid ransom on him for putting <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then by the end of the film, they're trying to work out the, who, who they owe yeah, money who to. Owes who so- money. Basically, yeah. half the movie is just accounting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Christina. <laughs> okay. We're amusing ourselves. <laughs> Number six, we have 101 Dalmatians. That's oh, the one the with Glenn Close. Yeah, was this, technically, was this technically the first? Because now we live in an age of so many live-action Disney remakes. Was this technically the first live-action Disney? That's true. Was it, but I, really, I really remember this, this movie. Yeah. Sure. 
I think maybe they played it on TV a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and number five is The Hunchback of Notre Dame. This was, yeah, between this and Pocahontas, this was killing Disney at the time. They'd come off like a golden age and then Hunchback didn't do as well and then Pocahontas really bombed. Really? Those are my some, two of my f- favorites. Yeah, I like Hunchback. It's got really classic sort of more musical theater songs rather than mm-hmm. sort of pop songs. Oh, and guess who was in this one? Who? Demi Moore. Demi Moore. Wow. I haven't thought about her in a long time either. Back to She's the still 90s. Married to Ashton Kutcher. Did they, they, Ashton Kutcher and her broke up, right? Yeah. A long time ago. I, I don't know, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, number four, we have The Rock. Oh, That's Sean ooh, Connery, Nicolas Cage, Ed Harris. <laughs> yeah, this is a... Uh, Michael Bay movie. Yeah, Michael Bay. Back in yep. his early heyday, just before Armageddon. Yeah. Just after uh, Bad Boys. He did Bad Boys, didn't he, Michael Bay? This is like, this thing, I remember, yeah, he did. I remember at this point, Michael Bay seemed like, oh my God, his films are so big and so insufferable. We had no idea. Like, these films feel so quaint now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Rock seems like a little indie film. Yeah, you go watch that and you're like, that's a well-balanced action film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and number two, uh, one of my favorite movies from the 90s. What? Twister. Oh, Twister. Oh. That was so good. Flying actually, cows. There's, there's so many good movies in this year, actually. I really watched Seymour Twister quite Hoffman, recently, actually. Helen Hunt, Bill mm-hmm. Paxton. Yeah. Bill Paxton. Yep, yep, I like yep, Twister. Yep. Great. I Did used you... to listen to that soundtrack so much. It's ridiculous. Oh, really? <laughs> really? What was the like, yeah. main song in that soundtrack? Oh, I don't know. There's one by Mark Knopfler on it, which I used to like a lot. Right. Darling I mean, Pretty. That was one. So many good movies came out this year. None of them made the top 10, really. I mean, barely any of them. Like, Striptease came out. Uh, Romeo <laughs> and Juliet. <laughs> yeah. Train oh, Romeo Juliet's an incredible movie. Train Spotting, yeah. Those am- amazing. Train and Romeo and Juliet are two of the best movies ever made. I don't know about Striptease being on that. <laughs> Scream came out. <laughs> what was the number one then, Christina? Independence Day. Oh, The Craft came out, too. <laughs> Well, it's funny you talk about Craft because Craft is uh, to do with Scream, Neve Campbell. Yeah. Oh my God, she had the Craft and Scream yep. in the same year. Oh, well, so good. And Steve Ulrich, who was Billy in Scream, was in the Craft as well. Was he really? Yep. I don't remember him in that. Whoa. Neither do I. I was just reading about it this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, and a Star Trek movie came out this year too. Yeah. So One Independence that I haven't Day. seen. Why, why haven't we seen Star this Trek, one? Not Star Wars. Don't go. Don't regress, oh! Christina. Oh, 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 oh man. <laughs> She's back to how she was. Oh, it's as if she learned nothing. Did we not watch enough Star Wars films? Do you need some more? <laughs> oh my god. The truth comes out. Okay. <laughs> We've watched like 12 Star Wars films. <laughs> <laughs> Disappointed. Uh, you can't change a gal. That's true. So with Independence Day and Twister, it's like the dawn of the big CGI That's action true. blockbuster. Mm. That is true. And Basically. notably in that top 10, no horror, which, yeah, is a trend that might change up the Scream. So Alexander Chad, I believe you have some horror films just so we could see where was Scream coming. Yeah, so a couple that were mentioned earlier, uh, one that you said you saw, Al, uh, From Dusk Till Dawn. Great film. So much fun. Brilliant film. 
And actually, yeah. I think that was the first script that Tarantino wrote. He wrote that, Natural Born Killers, and True Romance. I can't remember the order. Oh. And then sold them so that he could direct Reservoir Dogs. Oh, True right. Romance. Yeah. Oh, so good. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I love From Dust Till Dawn. That's great. So do I. Yeah, I really love that. Also, we, we just talked about The Craft. Following those two, The Frighteners, which was <laughs> Peter Jackson, right? Michael J. Fox? Yeah. Michael J. Used, Fox, Peter Jackson. I used to like that film. I also yeah, had that I film on VCD. <laughs> <laughs> what a time to be alive. <laughs> they, that was like the precursor to DVD, wasn't it? VCD? Like yeah. video, yeah. Yeah, but video. you had to flip them, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We also had Children of the Corn 4, The Gathering. Oh. I remember that being a really scary movie. Like, so scary I couldn't watch it. Is it? I remember uh, watching 20 is. minutes of the first one and thinking it was awful, and I've never gone back and seen any of <laughs> Linda them. Hamilton in the first one from Terminator. So, uh, is this a franchise we'll ever be visiting, Al? Because I'm I fucking out. hope not. I hope not. <laughs> um, it's, no, it's really bad. Even though I haven't seen most of these. I've only seen a few of them. I think our rule with these franchises has always been we only do films that are four films or above because then it's a franchise. If it's three films, it's a trilogy. But I've mapped out the next few years and I know exactly what all of our possibilities are for horror franchises. Excellent. And we're going to run out pretty quick of anything decent or remotely decent. And before you know it, would be in Children of the Corns, The Howlings, and The Leprechaun movies. And yep. I don't want to do m- most of those. Oh, the <laughs> Leprechaun fine. movies. That if scared me. If I had to do me. any, weirdly, I would do Leprechaun because they're so bad. We could have fun talking about those. Um, the Children of the Corn movies are so dull. What about the other one where it's like the TV, the TV thing? Poltergeist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ooh. I mean, there's some classics like that we might do one day, but I think we'll go to trilogies before we get into these stupid ones. Wait, are we going to do The Ring? I have the problem with the ring is that's mapped out for us, um, but the ring is actually about eleven movies because there's Eating. a lot. There's like Korean remakes, there's Japanese, like there's a whole new trilogy that just came out. There's crossovers. There's so many ring movies. I think there's actually more. I think it's like thirteen. So it's a ah. massive one to undertake. And the problem is most of them are exactly the same. Right. So it's quite a chore to be honest. Um, but we'll talk about it. Interesting. Uh, so also coming out, Lawnmower Man Two: Beyond Cyberspace. <laughs> oh, do you God. remember these movies? I do not, but I fucking no. love horror title, horror you don't film remember titles. Man? Lomo Man was such a big deal. It was like the first full sort of, well, almost full, like massive CGI virtual reality stuff in it. And it's based on a Stephen King novella, as was Children of the Corn. Oh. Really, really. It was a huge blockbuster, the first one, but it was fucking terrible. It was well worth watching the trailer for the first one because the uh, CGI is. Oh my God, is these images fantastic. are insane. It had the first ever CGI sex scene, and it's surreal and bizarre. God made him simple. Science made him a god. Yeah. He's like, he's like yeah, anyway, just go watch the trailer. We don't need to talk about it. And the last two that came out in 96 or out of this list um, is Sometimes They Come Back Again. I think that's more Stephen King. <laughs> I think that's more Stephen King. Brilliant titles. And Tremors 2, Aftershocks. Yeah, I love Tremors. We were nearly doing Tremors right now instead of Scream. But I swapped it to Scream for scheduling reasons because a new Tremors film came out this year and fucked up my schedule. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Wait, do you have your cast for Tremors yet? No, no, no. There's gonna, but it's six fucking films. Oh, look at that little smile. She you likes. You know, those it's big my ones. dad's favorite movie. Is it really? And we great. would watch it multiple times a year. 
several well, and, times a year. And there are tie-ins to this. Jamie Kennedy from Scream that we're about to talk about, he is in most of the Tremors films. <laughs> but yeah, we'll get to that. Yes. Another time. Is that it? That is yes. it. Not many, and most sound terrible. And there's a reason for that. Okay, so by the end of the 80s, Slasher was dead. Like, the Slasher boom had happened in, like, 1981, really. Went through to 1986. Kept going. Kept going for a while, but really was dwindling. Critics hated them. Fans started getting bored of them. And they were still, like, happening by this point. Sorry, not by this point, by the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. But they were languishing. And horror just went into this decline. It really didn't have a focal point for quite a few years. But it wasn't over for that long, because it was 96. And, yeah, Wes Craven manages to bring back the slasher genre. So, Scream. Budget, $14 million. A decent budget. That's big, right? It's not, not as huge. much as Bride of Chucky or Seed, no. which one was like twenty million. That's true. One of those was. That's true. It, was that made in the nineties though? It made like two thousand, so with inflation, you know, this is still less, but mm. yeah. So here's the there's an interesting story behind this, and apologize uh, for going on with it, but here you go. Uh, so Kevin Williamson, a lot of people I think think Wes Craven, this is his baby, and it really, really isn't. He was a director for hire, essentially. Kevin Williamson was 25 years old, coming from North Carolina, and he was three months behind on his rent, he was owing car payments, he was broke. He had sold a film called Teaching Mrs. Tingle. Do you guys remember this film from the 90s? What? No! <laughs> nope. This is a different type of horror film. He actually got to direct it a, few, a couple of years later. He had sold it, but the film had never gotten made. So it was just sitting on a shelf, one of those typical Hollywood stories. He was house-sitting a friend's house in Westwood, and he was watching the news about this trial that was going on for a guy called Edward Lee Humphrey from these real-life murders called the Gainesville Murders, where he had killed a whole bunch of high school girls in Florida. I don't know if you guys remember that. Really fucking terrible stuff. I don't like talking about it too much because I don't like to, like, you know, find entertainment in real-life murders, to be honest. Uh, but it's really horrible. It's like, like, yeah, raping, killing, and then severing their heads and then putting their heads places so that people would find them and be scared of it, much like a horror movie. He then blamed mm. horror films for some of what he did and stuff. And mm. anyway, very, very horrible. But he was watching this documentary, or no, sorry, not documentary, sort of news um, reel on it. And then his friend rang him up and they started chatting about their favorite horror films over the phone, uh, much like the beginning scene of Scream. And they gave him <clears throat> an, an idea for a movie. So he went to Palm Springs and in three days wrote a script called Scary Movie. And at the back of that script... He also, well, actually, no, we'll get to that later. Sorry. Fucking three days, though. Wrote, and it really didn't change much after that. So he took wow. it to his agents. He was kind of embarrassed about it. He thought it was too weird. Slasher films were over, but he was a big 80s slasher fan. And he, you know, he was trying to make it satirical. He was obviously being very self-referential. This was the first time characters in a horror movie were going to know the rules and know, you know, had seen other horror movies, essentially. But his agents liked it, so they started shopping it around. And they got interest immediately from Universal, Paramount, and Morgan Creek. And they started wow. a bidding war. Even Oliver Stone was in contention to try and buy the rights to this film. But <laughs> Kevin Williamson wanted Miramax because they had just done Pulp Fiction. They'd just done The English Patient. Now, we don't like to get too much into politics at the time, but we, it's hard to ignore the timings of this film, which we'll get to a little bit later. So this is obviously Miramax, which is the Weinstein Company. And Bob Weinstein, we've talked about him a lot in our Hellraiser retrospective because he's a huge horror fan of Harvey and Bob. Bob is the one who's the horror fan. So he started his own company this year called Dimension. Now, Dimension films are purely about making horror films. They bought the Hellraiser license and they bought the Halloween license, but they hadn't made the new films yet. 
they needed a flagship title. They were looking for something fresh and new that could start their new company off. So eventually Bob read the script because his assistant basically said to him, look, this script, if you don't want to make this movie, I don't know what you want to make, basically. It's like, this is it. He read it, loved it, and they bid on it. Now, they actually bid less money than the other companies were bidding, but Kevin wanted it to go to Bob. Bob and him, like both of their favorite films ever was the first Halloween. They saw eye to eye on, on horror and what they wanted to do. So he wanted to work with Bob Weinstein. So they paid Kevin. And it's unusual we know all these facts. It's kind of nice. I like knowing the business. But they paid him $400,000 just for the initial payment of the script. Wow, what a deal. <laughs> At that time, that's that awesome. helped him out wow. with those car payments. <laughs> yeah. And then they went off to find a director. But no one wanted to make it. So one of the first people they went to was Wes Craven, who declined. He did not want to make any more slasher films. He didn't want to make horror films. So Wes Craven, for people who don't know, he was one of the biggest names in horror. He had defined some movies in the 70s, making like The Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes. He did done a couple of shitty ones, like Swamp Thing. But then he'd come back in the 80s. Me and Alex have talked about him on the Nightmare on Elm Street podcast, where he created Freddy Krueger and that entire series. And then he was languishing again. He was doing pretty poor movies until 1994 when he had done this very, very postmodern film called Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Again, we've talked about it. Go into the wearegeeks.com, wearegeeks.com. One of my favorites. to our archives. Yeah, really great. And we talked about it at the time, New Nightmare in many ways is the precursor to Scream. He did write New Nightmare, however, but it is dealing with a lot of the same things. It's very, very savvy. It's very in itself. You've got actors playing themselves. A lot of the things that happen are the true stories of stuff that happened. And then he adds fiction on top of it. Wes Craven plays himself. The lead actress from the first Nightmare on Elm Street plays herself as the it's actress. Meta Craven. It is very, very postmodern. And it showed he had an interest in doing this kind of thing. But he just didn't want to make more horror. He had just made a terrible Eddie Murphy film called Vampire in Brooklyn. Oh boy, I forgot that he did that film. Oh my god. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't want to do it anymore. Uh, he was really getting told that he was, you know, a bad director now. Um, so he turned it down. Who else turned it down? Sam ne- Raimi, who invented Evil Dead and then went on to Ooh. direct the Spider-Man, original Spider-Man Tobey Maguire films. He turned it down. And they also went to our friend Christina George A. Romero to ask him to shoot this movie. Uh, he wow. also turned it down. Can you imagine wow. George A. Romero making this movie? No, my God. <clears throat> did anyone oh speak to did anyone speak to Don Mancini? <laughs> Sadly, I don't Creator feel. of I... Child's Play. <laughs> I don't feel Don Mancini. I wonder what it would be like if uh, Romero did it. Because, you know, it would be like maybe one of the first movies he's done where he didn't write the script, so Yep. Yeah, maybe it'd be better. Yeah. <laughs> but he's not great at directing. I mean, that's the thing with George Romero, as we yeah, discussed. Yeah, that's true. Not the best director. <laughs> so, yeah. So, what actually happened was they started getting cast on board. So, Drew Barrymore signed on to the film, which was a huge, huge, huge get for them at the time. Now, Drew Barrymore was in a lot of films in the 90s. Admittedly, nothing that amazing had just come out, but she was still known as you know Drew Barrymore from E.T. So, she was a huge, huge get. And wasn't she originally supposed to play Sydney? She was, exactly. She was signed on to play the lead role as Sidney Prescott. But so, is this true? Okay, so I heard that she didn't want to play Sidney because she, and she wanted to play who she played the first, you know, the first one killed because it would be a shock to all the audiences because she would be the biggest star in the movie. Sort of. Is it I true mean, that that was her idea? It's hard to know. So 
what happened is well actually we'll get to that in a second because we're nearly at it but yeah it's it's sort of maybe i mean that's what people say but there may have been other reasons for it so wes was concerned about he'd, he'd shown females in in being tormented a lot on film in his career and he felt calm when it was going to get him if he made mm. any more films like this but then a little kid apparently who was 12 years old came up to him was a huge wes fan and said to him you should do a real movie again because your films have been getting softer and softer <laughs> <laughs> and it really stuck with him that this 12 year old thought his movies were getting too fucking nice and then when yeah what, as soon as drew barrymore had signed on to the film it obviously made him more interested because they were getting real talent so then five or six weeks prior to actually shooting the movie drew barrymore decided she didn't want to be the lead now like you said christina it's reported that yeah it was her idea to be it would be more shocking for people since i'm such a big star they'll expect me to be in the whole film if i'm killed in the first sort of five minutes who knows like, who knows what the truth is? It could have been a contractual thing. She might have had an offer for a different film. Her, the, it's a horror film still. So it's something where her agents and manager may have been like, you know what? Maybe this isn't the best move. You know, Wes Craven wasn't having the most illustrious career at that point. So who knows? Maybe him signing on to horror fans, that's exciting. But to her agents, it's like, maybe this is going to be a bomb and you should be less involved in it. No one knows. Uh, it would be nice to think that, yes, it was because she thought it would be really cool for her to die in the opening. And to basically do a psycho. Because that's kind of how this film is talked about. We obviously haven't reviewed Psycho. But in the original Psycho, there's a huge, huge actress at the time who plays the lead character, you think, but then gets killed in the iconic shower scene. It's a long time, though. Like, you start with her for about half an hour of the movie before she's dispatched with. And it's a real shocker. It's a shocker because you're with her for so long. But at the time, it was a shocker because she was the biggest star in the movie. And Scream is really seen as doing the same thing. We're going to talk about it when we get into it, whether that still works today, though. Because Drew Barrymore isn't really a name anymore. And if she is, I doubt she's really seen as much bigger than anybody else in this movie. She's kind of of equal heights nowadays, I think. And it's a very, very short opening before she is killed. So it is very much now, okay, just the opening kill. Like That's what happens. But anyway, so she changed. And then they were left with, oh, shit, what do they do? They don't have someone to play. Sidney Prescott, Wes Craven actually nearly quit. He was very frustrated by her idea to do this and he nearly left. So Alicia Wood was someone they, who they nearly uh, took. Brittany Murphy. You remember Brittany Murphy? Anybody? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. I thought they offered it to Molly Ringwald, though, and she denied. Yeah. 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 They she talked said, to Molly no, Ringwald. No, no. Because uh, there were, I mean, it must you. be said, Kevin Williamson's script, a lot of similarities to those John. Hughes movies of the 80s. And then they also were talking about Reese Witherspoon. And Neve Campbell was doing Party of Five at the time. I loved that show. Me it too. was one of my favorites. I oh. love that show. I watched the first episode on Netflix a few weeks ago. Oh, really? What? Yeah. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to rewatch this. I used to love it. I had oh. Matthew Fox, who would later on have a resurgence in Lost. Mm. And yeah, she was, she'd just made the craft, but it wasn't like, you know, was it out by this point? It must have just been out, maybe. It came oh, out really. the same year. year. Okay, so it been early oh, years. So, so I she don't was, know. Oh, maybe. She was on the up and up from Party of Five and The Craft then. Mm. So they, yeah, they eventually, they took her, there's some great screen tests you can see of her, which was shot in 35mm, which is oh, crazy. Oh, cool. I'll look that up. Yeah, she does a great job on those screen tests. And then 
everyone else had got in weird ways like Matthew Lin- I mean most of the stories are just yeah this person was perfect we always wanted this person it's like no you didn't <laughs> but whatever <laughs> they got Ski Ulrich Matthew Lillard apparently got it because he was waiting with his girlfriend in the casting offices is for a different job or something and then the casting director saw him and said you look perfect for this come in the room which and one then- was he? Matthew Lillard is the friend of, well, the, the boyfriend of Rose McGowan. The, the goofy, guy. goofy, goofy, oh, one. goofy Oh, yeah, he's so good. Who is our friend Shallon Hollander's ideal man. <laughs> she loves him so much. What? Really? For real. For real. Oh, my gosh. Shannon. <laughs> yep. Judge <gasps> accordingly. They then offered oh, David Arquette one of the roles of the kids, but they won't say which role. Who do you think? It was his. David Arquette. It was Matthew Lillard, do you think? Yeah, it was. Is that what you read? Oh, okay. Yeah. mm -hmm. I couldn't find any information on who. Yeah, that's what I read. So uh, I must be right, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to be Dewey, even though he was basically the same age as all the kids. Oh. Which is why they have some jokes in there about his age as a police officer. Oh, I see. But you know, um, the character of Dewey was originally written as a, like, a buff buff uh you know buff dude i'll save you type of dude so i like this choice a lot better i think it's way cooler and he was meant to die as well but yeah we'll get to that they offered the role of uh they were close to home brooke shields actually for gail weathers but courtney cox really fought for it she was doing friends obviously at the time this was in the height of friends like this is Mm. friends were in what season four or five by this point and Mm. Couldn't have been bigger. I think they just started being paid about one million per episode at this point. And she really, really wanted to do something different that played against type. And it took them a lot of convincing. She had to fight to get this role. She did really good. Yeah. No, she so does. good. She proves herself in this movie. And then Kenny the cameraman, who was, apparently was in incredibly good shape before shooting and had to put on 20 pounds. Oh my Damn, God. For real? <laughs> Yeah, oh, that's funny. interviews with him later on, and he definitely looks like he never lost those, that twenty pounds. <laughs> Could have broken his life. Oh my gosh! Oh wait, was something interesting? Tori Spelling was also considered for the role of Sydney, but yes. it's funny because they make a joke about her in the movie. They do, they do, and <laughs> that might be coming back in the sequels as well. We'll get to that. Ah. <laughs> yes, thank you, Tori Spelling, indeed. And isn't Tori Spelling in Scary Movie? Yeah, I think she is. In one of them? Well, sort of. I mean, yeah, we're, we're going to get to her in the next ones. So, what are we talking about? Wait, and book. one oh, more fuck. thing. <laughs> Freddie, there's a lot of funny, fun, interesting facts about this there movie. Are. Freddie Prince Jr. wanted to play Stu. Oh, did he? Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense. Freddie Prince um, Kruger. He got to <laughs> He gets to be in a know what you did last summer. So, you know. Which I wish we could talk about know what you did last summer, but sadly they only have three films and not four films. So I'm waiting for that remake that keeps me- meaning to happen. Oh wait, wait, wait. And also you forgot you said Brooke Shields, but also they offered it to Janine Garofalo, which that she would have been good too. Who is she? Because that's the name I was struggling to write down. I don't know who she is. Oh, you have she to look her up. If you see her face, bites. you'll recognize her. Yeah, she's uh, in so many things. Cats versus she's dogs so cool. or whatever it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I knew the face, but I couldn't think what she was in. Yeah. Big 90s star, 80s star, right? Yeah, 80s she star. Was. Yeah. Yeah, late, early 90s, I'd say. Okay, so there's lots and lots and lots more facts, but we're going to try and sprinkle them in throughout, because otherwise this top end, this front end is going to get too loaded. So it's DP'd by Mark Irwin 
for the most part, but we're going to get to that as well. This guy's done so many movies. He did The Brood, he did Videodrome, he did The Dead Zone, lots of Cronenberg movies. The Fly, the Blob remake, Robocop 2, a little film called Passenger 57. Anyone remember that? Yep, Wesley Snipes. (laughs) That movie's so funny. (laughs) Dumb and Dumber, there's something about Mary, Road Trip, American Pie 2, and he had just done, with Wes Craven, New Nightmare. So it is important to note this DP has worked with Wes Craven just a couple of years prior. Music by Marco Beltrami. This is one of his first films and oh boy, he's done so much. He's done Mimic, uh, Halloween 7, The Faculty, Joyride, Resident Evil, Hellboy, 310 to Yuma, The Thing remake, World War Z, uh, Logan, Snowpiercer, The Night Before TV show, the video game Fortnite, which is the biggest thing in the world right now. He's done all these scores. I thought he did really good in this one, especially if it was his first one. I thought the music was good. They even had Nick Cave in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the soundtrack. The soundtrack's great. Oh, that's what I... Oh, so he didn't do the soundtrack. No, 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 no. This is just the score. Uh, But he does a great job. Does a great job. The Nick Cave song becomes a a theme tune for Scream, actually. They bring in the right right hand a few times. Yeah. So, yeah, we've mentioned most of the people, but starring Drew Barrymore as Casey Becker, Neve Campbell, or Nev Campbell, I think it is, actually, isn't it? Yeah, yeah Nev. as Sydney Prescott, Ski Ulrich as Billy Loomis. Nice little call out to Halloween there with uh, Dr. Loomis. Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers, Rose McGowan as Tatum Riley, David Arquette as Deputy Dewey, Matthew Lillard as Stuart. Don't get second names at this point. <laughs> Jamie Can- <laughs> Kennedy as Randy, Leif Schreiber as Cotton Weary, and then a whole bunch of extra people. We've got Linda Blair from The Exorcist as an obnoxious reporter. We've got Henry Winkler, the Fonz himself, as Principal Arthur Himbury, Wes Craven as Fred, and Roger oh. Jackson is playing Ghostface as his voice. We don't see Leave Schreiber as Cotton Weary in this, do we? We just see him on the TV. Name. See right. him on the TV. Yeah. Oh, I see. Very briefly. So yeah, it should be said, Roger Jackson, who did the voice for Ghostface, the way they shot this film was they never, until this day apparently, or until the last documentary I watched, uh, they never let any of the cast meet the voice of Ghostface, but he was on set the whole time. They got him to do phone calls to them so he could actually do the voice, even though obviously he'd redo it in VO later, uh, but so they could be acting against the real voice of Ghostface. And they kept him separate. I don't know how you do it on a film like this. It's very hard to keep people (laughs) separate for that amount of times and sequels and stuff, but they never got to meet him. And when you watch documentaries, he's kept in the dark. But Roger Jackson is a big VO guy for cartoons and video games. He's done Horizon Zero Dawn recently, Fallout 4, the Wolf Among Us, Dishonored, Mass Effect 3, uh, Telltale's The Walking Dead, Skyrim, Monkey Island. But he's probably most known as Mojo Jojo from the Powerpuff Girls. <laughs> he is the evil <laughs> monkey. Um, fantastic voice, though. What a great voice. Really, really crap resume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, then. Let's get into the fucking movie. That's enough preamble. So the film opens... And we're just fucking straight in. There's a phone ringing, there are people screaming, and the film title screen just comes up straight on. And then... 90s graphics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really bad 90s MTV sort of graphic. And then we're just straight in, the phone's ringing, and Drew Barrymore is picking up the phone, and she gets this, it's kind of basically, uh, it's when a stranger calls, it's uh, replicating that movie. She gets phoned up by the strange voice, uh, which is Roger Jackson. And within 10 seconds, she's hung up and then he's rung again. Like, we are fucking, there's no lead into this movie. We're just straight in. Yeah, I I forgot. I forgot about that. I was like, whoa. Oh. And this even before the image comes up. Like, the phone is ringing. That's the first thing you hear in the Yeah. Love it. I I was surprised. I I forgot. 
Um, so we introduce a young Casey Becker, who's played by Drew Barrymore. She starts just receiving phone calls, basically from an unidentified caller. She's out in a house in the middle of who knows where, sort of nowhere, America, miles yeah, around. Yeah, okay, so you don't ever know, because I couldn't no. figure it out. But why no. is it so nice there? So the film was uh, shot up near Sonoma, um, mm. California, and yeah. they really fought for that. So Bob Weinstein wanted them to shoot in Vancouver because they'd save about a million dollars through taxes. But Wes Craven really fought. He was like, no, we need to shoot here. This place is perfect. And they nearly fell out about it. Like uh, the Weinsteins actually basically said to him, all right, well, instead of being Wes Craven's uh, scream, we're going to call it Joe Blow's scream and just get some other fucking director to do it. But he did eventually win out and they got to shoot in California. Which, yeah, kind of makes sense up there. You'd have some of these houses just out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I love the setting. It's really I love beautiful. That, I love that sense that it's like isolated, but this small little town. Cool. Yeah. It's really cool. But not that small because the houses were huge and nice. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully yeah. big. <laughs> and a very different light. How you do this now is contentious because she doesn't have a mobile phone. She's getting rung on the landline again. And yeah, can you imagine it, kids? No mobile phones in 96. Didn't really happen. I mean, some people, but not me. Uh, she gets rung and rung again and again and again, basically. And it's this incredibly brilliant pot-boiling opener of, like, yeah, she's doing the popcorn, she's getting ready to watch the movies by herself. And as the popcorn is sort of heating up and eventually catching fire, the situation's doing the same. So he keeps ringing her back, gets flirtatious, she gets kind of fed up with it, and then he just suddenly twists it on her and, yeah, asks her, like, he's, he wants to... Is this a bit... Um, what did he say? What's the line he actually says when he twists it on her? It's to do with her guts, isn't it? I want to see what your insides look like or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fucking cool. And I remember that moment in the cinema. It was like so... It was so good. Because you know it's going to happen, right? You know, like, mm-hmm. he's obviously a nasty person. But you're like, how long are they going to draw it out for? And then he just flips the switch on her. I love the shots we get here of, like, outside of the swing on the tree and just things that feel very just, yeah. Yeah, with the... um, With the... uh. The sliding door, you know, the reflections in the in the glass, which come up a couple times. Yeah. But it did always make me scared of windows growing up. Oh, really? What the oh, that's fuck's on the other yeah. side? <laughs> <laughs> so I've forgotten how, yeah, postmodern and meta this whole film was. And obviously, oh, really? like, right from, yeah, I had. And just from the beginning, obviously, it's like right into it, like with the line of what's your favorite scary movie and then talking oh, about yeah. Halloween and then... I absolutely loved the Nightmare on Elm Street reference, which was like the first one was my favorite and the rest sucked just because. Wes Craven in interviews is like laughingly, he keeps going, please, I did not write this line. He said he wanted (laughs) to edit it out, but it was in the script uh, that Kevin Williamson had written. But I think many people think it's Wes Craven having his chance to say what we all know he thinks, which is that the first Nightmare was the only good one and the rest sucked because he wasn't a part of them. Mm. Or mostly. Uh, but no, this is all Kevin Williamson. But yeah, it's so funny. fucking pop culture referencing straight away. And in a way that now, I don't know, like, how does it work now? Because people are used to this now. But at the time, this was so fresh. And we're at a time of like a dawn of Tarantino and this sort of pop culture writing that really only happened in these couple of years. Mm. Yeah, for me, it wasn't like, it, it was just a surprise, but it, it surprised me because I forgot. But I think I got a big kick out of it mainly because of doing these retrospectives so there was this like mm. but it but it, it didn't feel i often find nowadays when sort of shows or movies become a bit like that it feels a bit too forced and deliberate and like an attempt to be cool whereas watching this i didn't feel like that at all 
No, yeah. I didn't feel like that either. I mean, it still felt over. It still felt very contextual, which is why it worked. I think. I don't know if I'm just like biased too, but you because from the moment the phone rang, everything like just nostalgia just came rushing towards me, and so I I am like loving every second of it so far. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. Like this opening, I think is perfect. I really so do. Good. I think every yeah, moment, I know everything I loved. The editing of this, the music, I think is brilliant in how it builds tension here. It keeps dropping off in the mm-hmm. right moments, changing when it needs to, and then allowing his fucking terrifying voice to come through when she does like, yeah, the horror tropes of asking who's there. And he's just on the phone saying she'd never ask who's there. Haven't you seen horror movies? You might as well go yeah. outside to check a strange noise or something. And yeah. it's just, it's brilliant. Like, and yeah, now for sure, people might be a bit more used to it, but I think it still works because it's such an effective scene. And it should be said, they shot this first. They did Drew Barrymore first, took them f- uh, five days of shooting. And they, during these first five days, the rushes were coming in and the Weinsteins, Bob Weinstein was worried about what he was seeing. He didn't like how Wes Craven was shooting this movie. And they were really getting close to, they might fire him straight away. Damn. So worried about what was going to happen with the movie, Wes Craven and his editor who was on set edited together these first 13 minutes uh, in a work print and sent it to the Weinsteins to see. And they fucking loved it. And after that, they were like, whatever you need for this movie. Like, just tell us what you need. Mm. This looks brilliant. Uh, Didn't they hate the mask too? They really did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So let's, uh, well, actually, it's not quite revealed yet. So we'll get to it in a second. Uh, But yeah, there's some interesting stuff to do with the mask. Yeah, and there's little stuff like, so when he starts quizzing her, he's like, you know, do these quizzes. He's got a boyfriend tied up outside by the swimming pool and, he's, and he wants to do his quiz to supposedly help her survive. But there's no way she's going to survive, right? It's like, no matter what she does, she's mm-hmm. there. Because these well, are trick I, I questions. I kind of forgot. These are trick was questions. Like, oh, oh, did she survive? Did she not survive? So oh, really? I was still on my, I was still like hoping maybe, maybe she survived. Maybe Drew Barrymore is the lead in this movie. <laughs> So he does, yeah, like the big trick question that he gives her. He kills her boyfriend and then he gives her the big trick question, which, oh, sorry, no. The trick question is, uh, who is the killer on Friday the 13th? And then she gets all excited thinking she knows it. And it's like you say, Alex, like doing these retrospectives, like watching these movies, I'm a huge horror fan and this feels like it's for horror fans. But somehow Mm -hmm. the public love this as well. And these are geeky, nerdy questions. And of course, the trick is, no, Jason wasn't in the first Friday the 13th. It's his mother. So her boyfriend gets gutted. It should also be said a lot of little bits of this movie were cut to pieces. The MPAA wanted to give it an NC-17 rating. Wes Craven really fought with that and they had to take out lots of little things. And they fought for right up until when they were meant to be releasing. They were panicking they were going to miss their release date because they having to go back and forth and you'll send stuff to the MPAA and they'll say, yeah, we'll look at it in two weeks' time. And then they just get back to you. And every time you submit, you have to pay money, you know? It's a real fucking crazy system. Damn. And Wes Craven's fought with them his entire life. So as soon as they see his name, they're going to try and fuck him over. And he didn't want to change anything. And it ended up being resolved because Bob Weinstein rang up the MPAA and told them this is a comedy. We'll go back <laughs> and watch it as a comedy. And then they let it pass. <laughs> but there are little bits cut out. So her, bo- oh her boyfriend's God. guts were meant to be more like dripping out and stuff. Like there's extra oh. seconds of this stuff. But that was still a pretty cool shot of him sitting there with, with the guts spilling down onto the, onto the ground. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just non-stop. It like builds perfect pacing. It's like really fucking aggressive. And there's little things. I don't e- I've watched this film so many times and this was the first time I noticed when he's asking her the first question, which is to do with Halloween, the Halloween theme tune is playing slowed down in the background in the score. Like it's just there, mm. like really quiet. 
It's fucking cool. I don't know if they paid for that <laughs> or if no one noticed. There's just so many nice little touches in this opening. So yeah, then she begins to panic when she, her boyfriend gets killed. And then he asks her one more trick question. And I want to get into this because we're going to do some spoilers right at the beginning. Okay, so the big twist with this movie is there is not one killer, there are two. So I like to talk through this movie thinking about that because it allows the killers to do what they do in these slasher films, which is be everywhere. You know, turn up at different doors and stuff like that. It makes sense because there's two of them. But, okay, so after killing Steve, the the, the ghost face torments her by saying, what door am I at? So watching this repeated times, you're always like, oh, this is a trick question as well. Because that both doors, right? Mm -hmm. However, when they're talking in the quad, Matthew Lillard has an alibi for this night. He's with his girlfriend. So it is just the boyfriend at at this house. Interesting. Which, I don't know, I just always presume this is a trick question, but does this mean she could have actually survived? She had answered it right? Like, I don't know. I think, I think the outcome, regardless of answer, she would have... Would be the same. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, at the end, he says something like, you'll die anyways, even if you answer it right or wrong. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so here is where... All hell breaks loose and Ghostface actually reveals himself. And we get to see the mask, now the iconic mask. And as you say, Christina, a lot of contention about this mask at the time, which seems crazy. Um, And a lot of trouble. So I think the biggest problem, like I'm trying to write slasher films a whole bunch and I'm actually writing one right now. Coming up with masks for a slasher film is so, so fucking hard because everything's been done and things that you would think look stupid can look iconic, like a hockey mask or in Halloween, it's William Shatner's face painted white. Like, that's what the mask is. It's a William Shatner Star Trek mask. Or the original, at least. And then they could never get that licensing again. So it's really, really tough to figure out what's going to be an iconic mask. And there are sketches you can see for the mask they were originally going to do for this. And they're so stupid. It's goblins. It's zombies. It's <laughs> monsters. It's like goofy-eyed boglins type things. Really bad. Um, and they were right up to when they were going to be shooting. And they didn't have a mask that Wes was happy with. But then they were scouting in the house where Alfred Hitchcock shot Shadow of a Doubt. And there's a really great photo from the location scout for Scream of this room. And hanging on one of the bed's four posters is the ghost face mask. It's just hanging there. Um, and it's fucking eerie as fuck to see like that's how like he then saw this photo and was like that mask in this photo looks amazing. And they went away and tried to replicate it because they didn't own it. So they did all these replications of it, changing it, making it more gobbling-y and stuff. And Wes said none of these work as well as that mask. So they ended up having to go and just pay the licensing to get this mask and uh, use the exact thing that they just happened to find on a location scout. I thought that face was also from a painting. It's been, it may have been that the original mask was based upon yet yeah, the scream because it is very similar in, in particular with the mouth. But they didn't design it. It was not made or created for this movie. It was simply found in this location scout. And it's hard to underestimate how much they might have changed this movie. Like if this movie didn't have that mask and instead if it had some stupid like Halloween goblin mask on instead, which it so Mm. nearly could have done, how different would this film be? You know, like it's crazy. And then for ages, they had that mask and then they were giving him white robes because they're like, well, he's meant to be a ghost. I read so that. Making, <laughs> making him look like Casper. <laughs> yeah, I read one of the reasons why they 
backed away from that too was that he looked a bit like a KKK member. Yes, exactly. Oh. They didn't want any, <laughs> any nothing to do yeah. with the clan. Yeah, so, so here we get the reveal and he's chasing around the house and he looks fucking great, right? I mean, that first bit where he, like, where he turns into the window and you just see his mm-hmm. face up against her face on the window. So good. So yeah. fucking good. And he's so different from the slasher villains that we knew up until this point who are mostly walking pretty slowly. You know, this is clearly a person running, chasing, falling over stuff. Yeah, that's what I liked right away was that yeah, that it was made immediately clear that it that there was no supernatural elements. This was a person, yeah, and that they were vulnerable, like him getting kicked in the nuts right away. <laughs> and, like, I, and I love that. I loved. I loved those moments where you do see his either vulnerability or clumsiness or just being a human, like being susceptible to different elements or circumstances, which were, which were really cool. But then for me, like I was saying, it then also overlapped with some of these memories from scary movie where they played up those parts and like <laughs> yeah. made up, made jokes about it. But yeah, it was cool. Do you find him scary though? That's the question. Like does him being, cause a uh, part of the reason for these slasher villains, not normally having human traits is you see them running, you see them falling over. They're not as scary. Like does, does he feel scary being this human? Uh, <laughs> I feel like he's more beatable this way. So yeah, I guess le- a little less scary. Yeah. For me, I mean, there's my feelings on the film overall and whether it's scary, which I'll get into at the end. I think what makes Ghostface scary is is the fear of like, yeah, that it is real, someone breaking in, like playing on those natural fears we have of like someone sneaking into your house and lurking in the background. Much like in the way that, oh, what's that film called with Liv Tyler? And it's about those people in the mask. and a the lot strangers. of strangers. Yeah, and a lot of the tension of that's built up with them like lurking in the background and that fear of someone yeah. breaking in and and watching you whilst you don't know. And I think Ghostface, there's parts that that play into that fear, which makes him scary. I think it was definitely suspenseful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that is, I mean, that, and that's the crux of it. This is a horror film, but it's really a whodunit, and that yeah. now is kind of expected, maybe with these sort of films. This was the first film to do that. Like it was going back to Agatha Christie sort of things. It was all about yeah. who is it? Here's your bunch of protagonists, and they point the finger at so many people throughout this movie. Yeah, and it was. I mean, I have to say, like I've always a problem I always had with Ghostface is once you get the reveal, because once I get the reveals, I never find him scary anymore. Yeah, but no. I do find Ghostface. I do find him scary in this opening, just because it's so fucking well done. Like the opening is so well. It is well built. done. That I find him scary. For the rest of the movie, nah, maybe not. But it's a lot of fun. And like you say, it's suspenseful. Yeah. So suspenseful. And you yeah. know, not as like gruesome and gory as a, uh, gory as a lot of other um, horror movies. So, it, it, so yeah. Yeah. There are bits later on where I found, and I think it was maybe directorial choices in the way they shot it, where Ghostface does become a little cartoony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, we can get into we'll that. Get yeah, so this uh, photo scene is finished in the best fucking possible way where he chases it across the lawn. It pulls into slow-mo as they're running, which I love. It doesn't start in slow-mo. It like, moves into slow-mo. And her parents are just pulling up the driveway. They don't see her. They just walk in casually talking. And then she gets stabbed in the chest in this single shot, which looks fucking brutal. And then she's unable to scream 
because he's like throttled her. And then we see her like she's crawling along. She tries to ring her parents on the phone or ring the house like on the phone. Sorry, the phone is off the hook because she was talking to Ghostface. Yeah. And then oh, she's and she on the ground. Unmasks him. She unmasks yeah. him too, which is cool. And I love that shot, like how it goes from her pulling off the mask and the second she does it, you just move straight to the knife. Yeah. You know, it's fucking great. Um, and then we're with the parents and they're inside looking for her and they realize something's gone wrong and they pick, and then she picks up the phone to call the police and obviously the other phone is, is open. Which again, maybe kids won't get this now because phone lines don't really yeah. work like this. Yeah. And so they can hear her on the other phone as she's being dragged outside and murdered and she's like gurgling and it's such a good touch. It's yep. an amazingly so beautiful. So good. And then they go outside and she just, the mother does this awesome scream, drops out of frame. The father like walks in. He's a man, so he doesn't scream because <laughs> it's the 90s. And they just get this fucking great like uh, erratic dolly in on their daughter strung up from the tree. Like, yeah, that shot butchered. is crazy. That shot is so crazy. Good. Crazy intro. Yeah, I completely took that for granted. The kids watching this now, yeah, wouldn't wouldn't relate to the whole phone picking up the phone and still being on the line thing. Yeah, yeah, that's so. They funny. might not understand. Might not understand. Yeah. So my very quick question, because I do want to get away from this opening, but I could talk about this opening the whole podcast. So yeah, I mean that's just my question. Is like I think the opening works anyway, even if you're just seeing it as a regular horror movie, because it's so well done. But I feel that extra impact of oh. Andrew Barrymore dies, it's gone now. Like, I don't think that is relevant. It's such a weird thing with movies where you can make a movie, you know, and a star can happen later or can die out later. Or, you know, like, you can't control the relationship the audience is going to have with a character in a film because things change with actors all the time. Mm -hmm. But I feel the relevance of her at the time is lost now. Yeah, I agree. I think that the impact of the opening is definitely not lost. I think, um, and Bethany was watching it with me, I think, yeah, being more connected to that time and Drew Barrymore's relevance then and sort of having a bigger perspective on her career, it's still kind of like, oh, cool. Like, that was a cool choice to kill Drew Barrymore right away. But yeah, maybe it's not as resonant now for a newer audience. But but for us watching it, it was still like, fuck, that's a cool choice, like putting her in and then killing her right away. Sure. So this is where you'd expect the title to, to come up, but they've already done it right at the top of the movie. I wish it's here. It's one of my only criticisms. I want that, you know, dolly into her strung up and then just scream to come up on, you know, on mm-hmm. the screen. It could be a cool place for it. I like precursors to a title in a slasher movie. One of my favorite things. But then we meet our real lead. This is Sidney Prescott played by Nev Campbell and her boyfriend, Billy Loomis, who is sneaking in for a bedroom window uh, <laughs> in a way that only 90s boys would. <laughs> I think well, it's exactly. <laughs> it's an echo completely of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Johnny yep. Depp. Oh. It is exactly. And uh, one of the reasons the Ski Ulrich was cast as Billy Loomis is because they thought they'd found the new Johnny Depp. Oh. And he does give that Johnny Depp vibe. He does. Absolutely. It was Only- funny when he, when he came on screen, I told Bethany that uh, this was a long, long time ago. And I actually never saw it. A friend told me about it. But. Jimmy Kimmel once introduced Johnny Depp at an award ceremony or some event as the rich man's Skeet Ulrich. (laughs) 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 But this is the thing, I could see what I think that looking at him, but his acting is he can only play creep. 
I like know that. he's so creepy. He's clearly like, a bad dude. Oh my gosh! When I first saw him, I was like, "Oh yeah, he's so hot." And then, like, I was like, "Oh god, he's so creepy." He's so creepy. He's he just is. so. He's so and his name, emo. like his original name. I mean, his real name, Skeet. Like he mm-hmm. looks like a Skeet. He really does. He really, <laughs> he really does. does. Like Doesn't he? Like, what? is is Skeet short for something? What is what? What's the name Skeet? No, but yeah. I don't know. Skeeter. I've never heard that name before. But still, it's still like, Skeeter. oh yeah, he's a Skeet, like the kid, like you know, the troubled kid in school that kills animals in the woods. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's yeah. a problem for me with this movie that he's not a great actor, but that also he can only play evil. Whereas so, Johnny Depp would have brought a nice innocence, I feel, to this. So yeah. Skeet is uh, Skeet Ulrich is his um, is his stage name. His his birth name is Brian Ray Trout, which also <laughs> sounds like a which also sounds like a serial killer. No. Brian Trout. Okay, wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he got the nickname Skeet, which originated from Skeeter, which was given by his little league coach because of his small Why? stature, resembling Why? that of a mosquito. Oh my oh, god, why Skeeter. would you change your Skeet. name to Skeet? Oh. No. <laughs> no wonder Trout. he never became Johnny Depp. I think he's pretty terrible. To me. I don't think he's great, but anyway, <laughs> we'll get to it. But yeah, he's creeping through the window and trying to have sex with her, but Sydney is a massive prude. And <laughs> <laughs> she starts to fucking prude and she like is really... No, she just has a fucking good sixth sense. That's true. Yeah, she, uh, That's she true. says I'm going to keep it PG. Telling her not. She's like, I'm going to give it, keep it PG 13, and she yeah. gives him a little flash, a little flash of the boobs. But yeah, she wants to remain a virgin. She says he wants to do some over the covers, over the clothes stuff. So she allows him to. But then that to her just means kissing. <laughs> he then tries to like stroke her thigh, and she's like, no. <laughs> and then they're almost discovered by Sid's father, who is Neil, played by Lawrence Hecht, who is definitely there just to be a red herring for the film. So many red herrings. He comes into Sydney's room to just discuss the fact that he's going out of town to an expo. I like to think it's like Comic-Con or something. He's like just a massive <laughs> yeah. nerd. <laughs> yeah. So Billy's talking about The Exorcist. Yeah, that he'd watched on TV and he said it was edited for TV and talking about how they used to be a nice hard R and now on their way to an NC-17, but now nothing ever happens in a relationship. I do love like when she's pushing him off a, she says, time's up stud bucket. <laughs> <laughs> But wait, why would the dad even go away on the one year anniversary of his wife's death? Yeah. Murder. I agree. <laughs> yep. A classic it's only absent been one year. trope. <laughs> gotta gotta leave the kids. And I mean this comes up again later as well. You could argue why do the parents go away when there's a curfew and a serial mm-hmm. killer on the loose? Yep. To allow no that cares. other guy to have a party. <laughs> They don't basically they don't want adults in this film other than the police force. They just mm-hmm. want teenagers. So yeah, the next day, Sydney school is a buzz with the news of murder. The classes are temporarily cancelled. We see Courtney Cox is introduced as Gail Weathers. We meet Sydney's best friend Tatum, played by Rose McGowan, and her brother is Dewey, played by <laughs> David Arquette. And the police are asking students questions. The principal is only only the funds. <laughs> Okay, so let me just say in this bit, this is like a very, this is one of those clear kind of casting things where you have 20-somethings playing teenagers. And yes. my first response to that right? was, okay. think, like referring to the first Nightmare on Elm Street, thing I liked was we had teenagers being teenagers. Yes, I agree. 
You wait till you get to Scream 2. We're going to have a 29-year-old playing a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too. That's why I think that's... That they said that Molly Ringwald said no because she said she didn't want to play a teenager because right. she was already 27. Yep. I mean, but to be fair, like... And honestly, Molly Ringwald can say no. Like... In a movie way, I buy all these people. They all, you know, yeah. yes, they're not young sure. enough, but we're used to in movies, people don't actually look as young as they really would. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of Agreed. fine with Agreed. these people. I think Jamie Kennedy definitely feels appropriate. Nev, I think, feels pretty good. Skeet, yeah. Eh, mm, Matthew Lillard is from his own planet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's a, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we meet Matthew Lillard as Stu, who is the boyfriend of Rose McGowan, and we meet Randy, Jamie Kennedy, a lot of fucking characters, but I have to say, I, they're all distinguished enough, you know, they're all just yeah. cartoony enough. Yeah. They're all so good. And I you kind of believe really they'll like, be friends. Yeah, and I love that intro of them sitting at the, on that little fountain or whatever they're sitting yeah. at, yeah. that little wall, and it's just like, sets it up as a little tableau first of just all of them in a line. And yeah, they're all so distinguishable from each other. That it's immediate of just like, oh, these are like these are all our players and it, it was it was really cool. And this is where it does feel very John Hughes, I feel. Like you know, they're mm-hmm. all different, but you do feel like, yeah, they would maybe be friends. Um, even though they're from different sort of cliques. And they're all obsessed with movies. Like everyone everyone is a nerd in this, but Randy is especially nerdy. He's like the super super nerd. And we have great lines like it's called tact, you fuck rag. <laughs> These <laughs> 90s insults that you never get again. So we learn here that Stu used to date Drew Barrymore, but he was... He, yeah, sorry, yeah, but that was my confusion. He says he, he, he was definitely with Rose McGowan the night, so there was only yeah, one of them stalking Yeah, but what time? Okay. You know? Interesting. You're like a police officer. <laughs> All right. Sherlock. Sure, <laughs> could have work. done the murder, because wouldn't he be the one to murder... Drew Barrymore. Well, that's what I if thought. And I thought it needs to be both yeah, of them. Sure. Yeah. Well, they're feeding into each other's motives, I guess, by the time we get to the end. They're helping each other out. So Sydney's deciding since her father's gone and she's alone, uh, she's going to stay with her best friend, Tatum. It should, again, we're staying away from politics, but I feel it's impossible to talk about this movie right now without very, very briefly mentioning this is the year, by the way. This is the year, basically, that Rose McGowan's come out and talked about with the Weinsteins or Harvey. Yeah. So it's very strange. I found watching this, and part half of my brain was going. I need to look up to know, like, was it after Scream or before Scream? Because I think it was just after Scream. Uh, that's Where the allegation started? Yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah, was I thinking like that too, like, especially the way she was portrayed. You know, I was. Yeah. I didn't even know until I saw the credits that the white scenes were in it, and I. So made full- me think. Made me think. Yeah, like I was watching it with Bethany. As I said, I think the first thing. Bethany's head when Rose McGowan was on stage, uh, came, came on screen, was um, uh, mentioned a comment about how she was standing, like very awkward, like in an unnatural way of like shoulders back, chest out sort of thing. And then later mm-hmm. on, there's a scene when Rose McGowan goes into the garage and it's like clearly like mm-hmm. her nipples are poking through a shirt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was like, yeah. Bethany was like, oh, nipples. And I was like, Harvey Weinstein produced this film. And then once yeah. we kind of, Brought that into the conversation. It all felt felt very well, weird is, watching it. This is what I do want to and say. Then, wait, 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 wait! But when she's in the garage and she's wearing that skirt, mm-hmm. you know the yeah, yeah, the, the spiral, spiral skirt, and it just like zooms in on the spiral. Yeah, she bends yeah. down to get the beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but uh, this is the thing, and this is why I kind of want to bring it up because I kind of want to bring it up to expel it. Um, because again, Harvey wasn't really involved with this. It's pretty much all Bob. 
Uh, whether or not we like Bob or not, that's a different question. But there haven't been allegations against him, at least at this point. Maybe there have by the time people listen to this in the future. But it should be said, they weren't like on set. They weren't interfering with this stuff. The nipple stuff, when you see interviews with Rose McGowan, like really good on her. Like she just is full candid for it. She is a playful kind of vixen-y kind of personality a lot mm-hmm. of the time. She had no problem with playing up sexuality whatsoever. Which again, should have nothing to do with like sexuality is nothing to do with, yeah. The kind of the allegations and sexual assault like you can be fixing you can be sexually promiscuous or however you want to be it doesn't mean anything that happened to her you know should have happened to her mm-hmm. so and she seems completely fine about all this stuff she laughs about the nipple scene because it's made her quite iconic in the 90s horror fans um and it was simply because it was really fucking cold they spent 21 days shooting in that house and it was mm-hmm. so cold almost every single night that they shot and people thought that she was wearing prosthetics or something. Um, and there was nothing she could do about her nipples, basically. They were just like, it was too cold. Mm. And she just finds it funny. Like, And it should be said again, I think everything that happened to her happened after this movie. So this is just a time where she's just having you know, fun, enjoying stuff. It did seem really fun. She was really fun in it. And I really loved watching her play this And role. she's the vixen character. Like, this is a classic character from the 80s yeah. slasher films. And it should be mm-hmm. said, no one gets naked in this film. Nobody. There are no actual boobs. There are a lot of lines about boobs. Yeah, I love how they gets played that. Yeah. We'll get to that. Yeah, when we get Good to on it, your but... words, Craven. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. But we do get some hints here, because we're not learning all about Sydney's background, but we mentioned uh, they mentioned that with all the reporters around, it's like deja vu all over again, uh, which is not a correct sentence, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> deja vu all over again. So what else deja vu? Hinting at what we were going to eventually learn about her mother. And we learned that Sydney's mother was raped and killed almost one year before. And uh, yeah, she's alone with her father, basically. So the phone rings, as tends to happen a lot in this movie. And yeah, Sydney's waiting around at home alone to get picked up. Phone rings. We hear a strange voice. It's the same one that was on the phone with Casey. And she thinks, of course, it's Randy joking around. And then she shows that she's not like Drew Barrymore. She knows horror films and she's anti them. Using lines oh, like, can, can I just rewind for a quickly? Yeah, sure. I think before she gets that call, doesn't she get a call from, um, oh my God, Rose McGowan's character, I forgot her name. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and she's like, let's watch this Tom Cruise movie. Yeah. Uh, if you pause it at the right <laughs> spot, you can see his penis. And I was just like, I was thinking, there was a t- point in time where people wanted to see Tom Cruise's penis. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to go with there's a point in time where people would freeze frame staticky VHS just to see nudity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the full MrSkin.com. The good old days. Yeah. yeah, she says like, uh, yeah, horror films are stupid. They're just it's about a big breasted girl who can't act running up the stairs when she should be running outside. It's insulting. Um, so we're learning here, you know, a lot about Nev, I feel, in the scene. She's smarter. She's independent. She's knowing about the horror franchises. And then he tells her that he's at the front door. And we also learn that she's brave enough to just go outside and just look for him. And then saying that she calls his bluff and then goofing around by picking her nose going, what am I doing? Inadvertently letting him inside, I presume, yeah, at this point when she goes outside. So we don't see him sneak by, but I'm guessing that's how he gets in the house. It's, you know, all the girls outside. in this are... What? No, I, I think he snuck inside. Climbs through the window with which we see later... Is already or open. Or okay. he was in the closet the whole time. Because remember when she opens the closet, it was kind of eerie. I think they even yeah, had the okay. eerie music playing. So I was like, oh, maybe exactly. somebody's in there. And then before she fell asleep, there was a sound like in the house. Oh, okay. So okay. in that bit with the, the closet, I rewound that. And I was like, hey, Bethany, is this 
the music like has a, like a little jump like it's and i was like is that just because there's like you see a kind of like a black coat hanging and i'm like is that intentional and bethany's like oh i think it's just building suspense but it was definitely there was like a moment of emphasis on that cupboard opening okay yeah okay. because the closet actually there's a lot of things that go on with closets throughout the movie oh yeah mm-hmm. well that to be honest is all a throwback to the first halloween which again kevin uh, williamson's favorite horror film bob weinstein's favorite horror film and even cc's and so not cc drew barrymore in the first scene of favorite horror movie <laughs> I thought you so said it's feces i was like even tc even poop <laughs> loves halloween <laughs> So then the caller turns abusive and brings up Sydney's mother, saying, do you want to die, Sydney? Your mother sure didn't. Which is the first hint that this killer could be the same killer as her mother. And then he emerges from a closet in Sydney's house and she runs upstairs. They have a big old fight. Now, I have to ask something. He's going straight for her, right? Now, it seems to be, as we, what basically what's going to happen, she's going to lock herself in the bedroom. She's going to dial 911 on her computer, which I love. Oh my <laughs> God, yeah, that's right. And then, and then Billy, her boyfriend, is going to arrive, climbing through Sydney's window again, and then a cellular phone is going to fall out of its pocket. And then Sydney realizes, hang on, he could have been the one phoning her. And he basically gets taken off to the police. Now, he then gets let free because his phone number doesn't have any of her, you know, like he didn't make the calls, basically. So I've always mm. taken it watching this film that this is all a setup for her to be take for him to be taken off the hook so that you know she would trust him for the rest of what they want to be doing so they plan okay let's plan, stage an attack on her and then you come you know so it's obviously Matthew Lillard attacking her and then Skeet's going to come in through the window to then basically get him off the hook you know so then she trusts him for the rest mm-hmm. of the movie however they, Ghostface is really trying to kill her. Like he gets her on the ground and he's got knife in the air about to stab her in the chest and then she just manages to like smack him in the head and get him off. So like, my question is, do they really want to kill her at this point? Yes. Like, which if they do, why do why kill Drew Barrymore? Why do any of it? Like, <gasps> but maybe they don't want to kill her because I thought, okay, they wanted to kill her. And I thought it was only really probably Skeet there. But yeah, at the too. end of the movie, they do say like, oh, it's... It's the day of the anniversary when we killed your mother. So maybe they didn't want to kill her because exactly. why would the anniversary even matter then if they were really trying to kill her over like then? The plan seems to be, yeah, to get to the ending that they want. They seem to want to create their own horror film. Like, that seems to be the plan. And so they want to do the opening kill that creates the legend. They kill her mother a year before to, like, you know, to create her backstory. They're trying to create their own slasher film, essentially. Mm-hmm. And they want this party at the end. I always thought it was just Skeet in that house scene. I always thought so too. So does he have two more cellular phones then and drops well, one? Well, no, like that what? Matthew Lillard's maybe co- making the call. <sighs> oh, no, okay. I, okay, I thought that, but maybe they don't have the technology then, but I thought that, no, they do because, <laughs> because I think he did call her from that cell phone that he dropped, but... You see, the police couldn't get the information until the next day. So I feel like Matthew did some stuff to make all of the phone calls go to the father's because they linked the father's phone to all of the phone calls. But I think because we find out later, spoilers for the end, they, they had kill, his phone. Well, they've taken the father. So oh, I think they, they just took his phone. phone. Yeah. They kidnap yeah. him as soon as he leaves, take his phone to use it for these calls. So, oh. So they were definitely so both working in cahoots like, for this one. Yeah, it's just so whether like Matthew Lillard thought... or Skeet were in the mask or not. Yeah. Guess we'll never know. I'm just a little bit... I mean, it works perfectly for the movie, and it's a nice surprise because normally your lead final goal is not going to come into contact with the killer this early. So it's kind of cool. 
but I don't know if it works logically. Like, I don't if they had actually killed her, yeah. what happens then? I do like yeah. uh, once they're being interrogated, and this is just a sign of the times, how often they say cellular phone. Yeah. <laughs> he called from her his cellular phone. I it was the cellular phone. <laughs> it's just like they have to say the whole thing the whole time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's getting questioned. He's like, let me ask you this, kid. What are you doing with a cellular telephone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was brilliant. Um, and Billy's dad, he comes in to like tell him, no, it's my kid. He's fine. He's fine. He looks A, terrifying, <laughs> more terrifying than his son. And B, like he immediately, he goes from saying, no, my son's innocent to, oh, Maybe you did do it. Like, I, exactly. Yeah. I know. I know. It's really funny. And then Billy uh, looks just, so emo. But do you it, think it, Billy it, was the one that made the phone call? Do you think he really did make a phone call when he was at the, uh, when, when Nev was staying at her friend's house? You know, did he use that one phone call to call her? I don't think it really matters. Whatever. <laughs> a bit I like when they're at prison we were back with Gail Weathers and it's her coming out of the truck and I just liked the way they filmed it where they it's from the perspective of like the cameraman's camera and her just going through the crowd and then she pushes oh, the camera yeah. away I, oh, I didn't even notice that cool. yeah 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 okay. that's true so this is totally where we learned 100% this movie is a whodunit they're pulling out Billy's phone account but yeah like you say Christina will take till the morning yeah and then Gail Weathers come in and She's written an expose or is about to publish an expose about the murder of Sydney's mother. And we're really learning this bit by bit. It is interesting that we don't get all this exposition in a dump. It is like bit by bit. I like it bit by bit. Yeah. It works so good. Mm-hmm. And then Sydney punches Gail in the face Brilliant. for basically being a bitch. Yeah. So then Tayan takes Sydney to a house when she's dressed in these incredible cloud pajamas. Oh my God, you noticed that too? I loved it. And I was I like, I want to get me some of those. <laughs> and then she gets another phone call, which is great because the mother comes up to say, oh, you got a phone call. You think you'd worry about it after everything that just happened. Yeah. She's like, oh, is it, you know, what she say? Is it my dad? What is she yeah, like, oh, is I don't it my think dad? so. Sounds like a creepy <laughs> pervert. So... <laughs> Yeah, and the phone call just says, you got the wrong guy, Sydney, again. And then we get a ridiculous end scene as we suddenly start to get Dewey. We start to see just how goofy Dewey's going to be in this movie. (laughs) Which is really fucking goofy. When he comes down to the kitchen in his parents' house with the gun drawn on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) And then just picks it up, just going, hello? (laughs) (laughs) This movie is funny. He's so goofy, though. Like, he's crazy. Yeah, Red Right Hand from Nick Cave begins to play in score form. We'll get it mm, later as a song. So good. So we learn here via the TV that Sydney testified against Cotton Weary for raping and murdering her mother. I love that name. Mm-hmm. Cotton Weary. That yeah. is a yeah. good name. Dewey tells her that Billy was released because his cellular account was clean. <laughs> 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 the next day at school, Sydney sees Gail. So they have a little chat. Gail thinks she's a liar and that Cotton is innocent. So this is where we're playing that first scene thing of, uh, yeah, maybe the killer ghost face is actually who killed her mother. Cotton Weary is in jail for different reasons. Or maybe it really is all Cotton Weary and he's actually ghost face because he's been let out. And we learn that what happened was, so she says that Sydney's mother was having an affair with Cotton Weary. And Sydney saw someone leaving wearing Cotton's coat. Uh, but, but Gail is saying that someone else left wearing Cotton's coat and then planted it in Cotton's car, framing him. 
So we find out here that Sydney's mother is a little promiscuous. A whore is what they say. Well, you you can use that word. (laughs) She's having some fun. That's a little weird. Her husband's always at nerdy Comic-Con, so, you know, she's got to do what she can. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, we've got people in the air right now. We've got the father. We've got Con Weary. We've got her boyfriend. We've got Lillard. We've got Randy. Like, is it or someone else? Like, a whole bunch of people. And at school, people are already dressing up like Ghostface and running around pretending to stab each other in a way that only dicks in the 90s films could do. Yeah, man. Gosh. It did, like, really, like, ugh. God, they're so like it made me hate people. <laughs> it's funny oh, here, she, especially uh, high school students. Oh, especially the men. Oh, right, boys, nineties boys. boys. Funny, out of all the horror movie references, I thought one that was funny is uh, she bumps into Billy here, and he's like, he says something like, um, "You've turned me into the Candyman," which <laughs> yeah. was like an early nineties horror. Which I thought was a funny reference out of all yes. the like classic horror films. They mentioned the Candyman. Uh, yeah, this scene with her when she runs into Billy. I mean, he's terrible in this. Scene. Yeah, it's like how can you like make it worse for yourself? Like you dug your like what? I think the film fails. Why here would you say those things? It just surely. It's- it just so she, shows that he's evil. Yeah, because surely yeah, the point like- of him doing what he's done is so that she will believe him, but also so the audience will. You want yeah. to give the audience the bio of, oh, he's already been investigated early on, he's fine. And instead, they have this conversation which could totally do that and let him off the hook to us, but instead it just makes you go, oh no, he's clearly evil. Yeah, he's he clearly the killer. Terrible thing when she's like, like someone rang me again last night and, and instead of him going, oh no, are you okay? He goes, see, couldn't have been me. I was in jail. And yeah. then holds up his hands which still have fingerprint ink on them and says, yeah. my least a big pet peeve for me is when people say stuff and then they go, remember? It's like, yes, of course I remember. It was the same fucking day. No, but even just like everything else he says about her mom and like, it's already been a year. It's only been a year. He's like, I think it's time you got over that. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) It's so bad. There's very little nuance or subtlety in in everything that he says and does. You're right. I'll have sex with you now. (laughs) You're right. I should get over my dead mom who got murdered. Yeah. And maybe his murder is still out there. And now I'm getting terrorized. Let's go fuck. Yeah, I'm overreacting and I'm being so selfish. <laughs> I'll give you my vagina now. <laughs> he's so... And then he's like, yeah, when my mom left my dad, I came to terms with it. She wasn't raped and murdered. <laughs> it's really like... It's just the writing's not great in this scene and he's just terrible. Like, I don't... I mean, again, I think he can act what he can act, but it's not right for the character. Like, I want, when I think of Johnny Depp from A Nightmare on Elm Street, Alex, like, mm-hmm. that's how I want this character to be. Like, you know, you could play him both ways. Uh, but here he can only be played one way. Yeah. But I probably f- still have sex with him, too. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, pro- this is the problem with the world. This is the problem with the world. <laughs> then we get the Fonz, the principal of the high school, in one of my favorite bits of dialogue but they just basically <laughs> want to point a finger at oh but maybe he could also be the killer because he's got in a couple of the kids who are running around with ghost face masks on and he's going your entire thieving whoring generation disgusts me <laughs> i love how they <laughs> ram this one in i'm just like let's throw in another suspect yep uh we've only seen him for a few seconds let's just ram this one in with he him. probably shouldn't be a principal if uh <laughs> 
<laughs> if you hate kids that much. If you no, think but just those kids are whoring. horrible. But he says you're entire. He doesn't say you two. He says your entire thieving whoring generation. But they kind of are because <laughs> oh, look at all the, all the giant all the kids at the them. party. Yeah, he's got scissors at them, and he's like, "Fairness would be to rip your insides out and hang you from a tree." <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> just trying to make us feel okay. Maybe he's the killer. Meanwhile, Sydney's in the bathroom over here's two bitchy girls talking about how she was never attacked and she just lied about it for attention. And then saying, maybe she's a slut like a mother. A mother was a tramp. A lot of slut shaming in this movie. Yeah. A yep. lot. Kids, if you're listening at home, if you want to be a slut, go be a slut. You do what you yeah. want to do. <laughs> That's the funnest part of my life. My best years. <laughs> Your best years. Yeah. My it's clear to me. I wish I started sooner. <laughs> life is short. <sighs> Now it's I'm married, I can't be a slut. No. God damn it. No. You got a dog, so it's fine. It's not the same. So it's clear to me, it feels to me that Kevin Williamson, well, maybe even Wes Craven, really don't like teenagers in the 1990s. But also, what I kind of admire about it is if I wrote this, I would write them as, yeah, whoring, loathful generation. <laughs> but I would be bitter about it. There's no bitterness here. It's kind of playful, you know? It's almost amusing. It's almost like, yeah, I hate this fucking generation, but isn't it kind of funny, you know? <laughs> it's not mean. There's no grumpy old man feel to this, even though Wes Craven is a fucking old man by the time he makes this. <laughs> so then Sydney gets threatened by the killer when she's in the bathroom, or it's not the killer. We don't know. Never find out. I love, I love that shot of him stepping down off the bathroom and then yeah. slowly the robe the skirt. <laughs> coming down as well. <laughs> the skirt. It's really funny. And then yeah, she does cool. a power slide, sort of Lara Croft, Far Cry kind of power slide under her yeah, ghost face, which is funny. <laughs> For the rest of the movie, I was trying to see like if any of those guys, the two guys, um, were wearing those shoes and those oh. jeans, but I didn't. They barely, they wouldn't show their shoes. Doc Martens, very big in the 90s. We go to a TV reporter who says another one of my favorite stupid lines. You can literally feel the fear. Nope. <laughs> no, you can't. Uh, <laughs> so Gail and Dewey meet for the first time and start flirting immediately. My questions are, does Dewey know, know his lines? Because he can't. He's so weird. He's so weird. His <laughs> pauses are so fucking weird. Mm -hmm. Well, he's supposed to be awkward. Yeah, but is it awkward or just like, I don't know, man. It's so fucking strange. I don't I really... bought it. I know most people love Dewey. I kind of do love him, but I do think he's a bit too far for me. Like, just reel it in a little bit, you know? I love Dewey. <laughs> I love him out of context of a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we should say immediately on set, straight away, these two started flirting. And after this movie, dating. They got married. Got married. And then they and then divorced. The of friends changed because mm. she became Courtney Cox Arquette. True. Ruined everything. <laughs> School is over and a curfew is in place. Everyone's very excited about this curfew, which basically means you get one afternoon off. <laughs> Remember when that was a big deal? <laughs> it was, yeah. man. I, it really was. I prayed for those days. I actually Dreamed really about like them. this idea of this whole small town going into lockdown and, and children having a curfew yeah, I, love like, it. I think it's really cool there's something i don't know just i don't know weird and dark and maybe a bit sort of like fairy tale-ish about it like all kids have to be in before dark like it's just it's something cool about it 
and the fact that everybody's involved, like the whole town is yeah. now involved with this. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah, even the family having the picnic. <laughs> yeah, even though we don't see most of the town and we don't see the parents and the kids decide this is a perfect time to throw a party. <laughs> and the parents yeah. go, sure, do that. We're out. We're out. <laughs> My parents are out of town. <laughs> Meanwhile, the principal Fonz, who we've just set up as maybe being, maybe being <laughs> one of the killers, is trying on the ghost face mask. And I love this scene. He keeps spooking himself in the mirror. He does it twice. That's <laughs> <laughs> so good. It's, it's really good. Can you imagine? Do you think he's like that when he's at home? He's just, every he walks into another room and he sees his reflection. He's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That's brilliant. Yeah, he stumbles across Fred the janitor. This is Wes Craven, which he didn't want to do it, but everyone forced him. They were like, do an Alfred Hitchcock cameo. Dressed in the actual, he's kept it in his, uh, he kept it in his closet, apparently. It's the actual oh original God. Nightmare on Elm Street Freddy Krueger jumper and hat. Um, and he's wearing both of them as a Janet here and called Fred. It was pretty funny it. and goofy. I liked it. I like it. I like so Nightmare on Elm Street, friend. You like this? <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love a director cameo. Why not? Uh, I love director cameos too. Wasn't allowed. Wasn't allowed. Right. So yeah. I think he's great in this scene, but I don't think he can die well. He gets killed. He's just been set up as maybe yeah, one of the killers, and instead he becomes a victim immediately. I do, oh, fucking hell. He's dying, and this is so stupid, though. He's, like, screaming with his mouth, like, wide open as Ghostface stabs him. But then we do get the cool shot of Ghostface in his eyeball, like, being reflected. Yeah, that shot was cool. Henry Winkler screaming uh, reminded me a bit of... Child's Play 3, um, the, <laughs> the general, military general uh, heart mm. attack death scene. Like, it was just over the top and like, like yeah, just a bit it's silly. so goofy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that heart attack scene. <laughs> no, so then School's Out plays by Alice Cooper because in the 90s, that's what played in every single teenage movie at some point. Oh, and by the way, Principal's death is kill number three. If oh, we're not, the kill if count. We, if we're not including... Uh, Maureen Prescott, Sidney's mother. Yeah, not including on-screen kills, kills just on-screen. Yeah, so he's kill three. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. Rose McGowan is chatting to Sydney about how she thinks Cotton Weary might be innocent, which, you know, seems a little inappropriate, but okay. Oh, it turns out that it's true. So. It is true. Correct me if I'm wrong, does she say it's starting to sound like some Wes Carpenter flick? Yep. Yep. <laughs> And again, this is in the script. Like Wes Craven said he was reading it and then chuckled because like, oh, there's my half of my name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant. And then we see, I find this image, this is real. This is again where it's getting a bit too dumb for me. We see Ghostface sneaking through the woods. Yeah. Too cartoony. Way too I cartoony. I thought that was like unnecessary. And then even in the, what, grocery store? Unnecessary. Yeah. But I was, uh -uh. But I was only playing off as like, is this meant to be just people in the town just creeping around you know or is it is it just meant to be showing all oh, the town's gone ghost face crazy or is it actually meant to be ghost no face? i think it's yeah. meant to be ghost face for me it was it kind of it like, ruined it started it was just not a touch that i really liked because up until that point i was like oh cool all the ghost part uh, face reveals were cool at that point but that just sounded like it needed like some cartoony music of like a <laughs> he's just like sneaking yeah. off it's like scooby-doo they could have yeah. given that feel without showing him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They could have just played some creepy music. You know how they do that? They play creepy music in the background and you could kind of like feel like somebody's watching you or the killer's there watching it. you. You don't even need it. 
Yeah, yeah, I but I'm just saying that would have been a better alternative. Yeah, or just a POV show if you have to go classic 80s slasher and have a POV show from the woods just watching them from afar there, for a few that's seconds. What, that's what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah, Lillard, Matthew Lillard visits Randy at the video store where he works. Remember video stores, guys? Uh, and, no, yeah. really, I do. That's something I do remember. <laughs> and this is the scene where Randy starts to lay out some of the rules <laughs> Which I love yeah. this line. Besides, I miss if, video stores, guys. If it gets too complicated, you lose your target audience. Which I love. <laughs> yeah, kind of insulting the people in the cinema. <laughs> the <film. laughs> uh, Lillard is fucking insane, right? Like his acting is so. And there's this great documentary, and he says in it, "It this movie should have ruined his career in Hollywood because <laughs> he like that goes so far. He pushes the boat out so fucking far." Yeah, um, and I was reading that he, like, a lot of his lines, he ad-libbed, and they made Wes Craven laugh, so he was like, yeah, cool, we'll keep that in. <laughs> Wait, we'll, who we'll did? Get to one, we'll get, we'll get to one towards the end. Oh, Matthew. So over the top. It's insane. I know, but it works so- Okay, you guys did not like it, because I kind of really liked it. No, I, I liked it. I, it didn't bother me. It he bothers committed. me, but I like it fine. Where I don't like it is when we find out he's the killer later. Like, this is the thing. It's like, him, in context of being a goofy friend- I'm fine with just about, but once we find out he's a killer, I have problems with it. But we'll get. There. I like it more. Yeah, for me, it's like yeah, I'm, I'm with Christina on this one. No, I don't like it. But yeah, uh, but we 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 get a real play from it here because we get yeah, like so he's saying that he thinks it might be the father. We're really here planting more seeds of doubt. Randy's saying no, 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 the father's dead and his body will pop up in the last reel. There's a formula to it, and then Billy turns up uh, in the video store being creepy as fuck and this is where we get to see like watching it knowing that these two are the killers this is the scene right where you see billy and matthew lillard leans in on randy's back and looks malicious and you see them both playing with him and you suddenly get this and it's so uh, clear in the scene yeah. that yeah. these two are the killers and they're totally out of character it's just totally like no here we are being killers playing with you and it's really weird it's really weird but it works kind of nicely mm-hmm. even though again billy fooled. is just like clearly a fucking maniac <laughs> as as randy says at the end of the scene like, sure, clearly that guy's evil. So, yeah, the town shut down for curfew. They're discussing who would play Sydney in a movie of what's happening. She says with her luck, she'd get Tori Spelling. <laughs> Poor Tori Spelling must have been like, what fucking assholes. <laughs> so Tori Spelling was in uh, Scary Movie 2. I looked it up. Is she? Oh, okay. Yeah. Dewey has a chat with his boss. This scene is ridiculous as well. He's like licking his ice cream cone while his boss is fucking. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. And this is straight out of Halloween 1, by the way, this scene. Mm. And then they're saying that the calls, they realize that the calls came from Sydney's father. And it turns out that tomorrow is the anniversary of his wife's death. <laughs> it's just through, through his face as he's listening to this information. It takes a little lick each time and just goes, Yeah, he mm, does. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> And now it's night time and it's house party time. We're into the third act and a huge chunk of the movie and what is known as the longest night in horror because it took them 21 days to shoot one scene. That's insane. Scene 118. like 40 minutes? Yeah, massive. And they had t-shirts made up for called I Survived Scene 118. I know, I was going to say it. Oh, sorry. sorry. God dang it. (laughs) I bet they go for a good penny on the eBay. Yeah, I'm looking one up now. So Gail Weathers has also turned up to this house party and she takes a cameraman. How did she learn where this place is or was it just buzzed around? Did she say? Small town. Small town. Everyone knows house party happening in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, sure. She's probably sleeping with one of the college kids just to get leads yeah. to the cool parties in town. Yeah. 
She's taken a camera around to the party and attempt to talk to Sydney, but Dewey intercepts her. And the two of them talk and seem to have a mutual affection. She, what I do love about this is you can just see in Courtney's eyes how much she likes him. You know, it's like right there on screen. You can see her falling in love with him during the shooting of this film. As in Court, Courtney Cox falling in love. Not, yeah. No, you yeah. really can. There's an affection in her eyes that's just right there. Because in mm. the beginning, you know, you know that she's just doing it to get information and to, you know, she's just using her uh, sexuality. Mm-hmm. To move on then up. he uses his goofy charm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He uses his but mustache. Then, yeah, but then it does seem like she kind of does, like, and, like she does kind of really actually like him. Really does. I just, I just get that from her as an actress. It's like you can see her falling in love with him you know, in, for, in real life, which I like. Gail's got a secret camera, which I really like. I love this idea. So the I end of the party. I love that idea too. Dewey, I love this as well. Dewey chooses not to bust the party goers. He's like, hey, 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 how old are you all? And then they all panic. Yeah. He goes, I'm kidding. You'll be good time. <laughs> <laughs> like, I thought that was freaking. a little weird. You're a fucking police cop. Like, he can, yeah. he's a police cop. But he, he wants to be cool. He wants to be down with the kids. Yeah. He does. I guess. because he is a kid. <laughs> I want to know, like, would the original version of an older version, more buff of this cop, have been written that way? Or is this all yeah. him? So yeah, yeah, she leaves. I do love this with the security camera. It's leaving it in above the TV, basically. And then we find out a little bit later it's got a 30 seconds delay, which is I brilliant. love that it has a 30 so second cool. delay. I, I, yeah, I really so like it cool. too. So Tatum heads to the garage to get some beers. Now this is the scene we are talking about earlier. Why would the beers be in the garage? You're having a fridges. party. You have a big fridge. Yeah, people, the... Some people have a second fridge in the garage. Which they no, I know. I had a second in. fridge in the garage growing up. But <laughs> if you're having a huge party, why don't you have all the beers in the front fridge? You're having a huge party. Through, I feel they've gone through their first beer batch. Because we're actually getting to the party when it's almost clearing up. Like, like they're getting near the curfew time. And I'd never picked up on this in, the other, in my previous viewings. But this time I'm like, oh, everyone goes home. <laughs> other than a few rebels, yeah. Yeah. basically. But nobody's like... Like by that, like after she dies, nobody's like, "Oh, I'm gonna go get more beer in the garage." Like, that's true. That's that true because those yeah. beers never go back. So yeah, so the party's out of beers. That's <laughs> but they a very all good have point. beers. That's a but they all have beers. You've broken the film for me, Christina. Now <laughs> that's a very Ruined. good point. <laughs> <laughs> you don't yeah, know, so whatever. this is the scene where she's wearing that dress and she's got very very pointy nipples, and then Ghostface turns up. Um, she fights him. So I always found it weird because she doesn't scream. Did you notice that in this scene? Yeah, when she gets cut, she doesn't scream. And even just running from him, she's like, there are other people in the house, just scream for them, mm. and they might come and help. But she deals you, with him herself. You know, I do got to say, like, after, like, coming off of all the Romero's movies and the way he portrays women and all of his female characters, it was really nice to see, like, some tough-ass bitches in this one. Like, all the females fought. Yeah. I mean, again, just to clarify, Romero was trying to write that for his entire career to make up for Barbara. <laughs> he just necessarily didn't always get it right. Um, yeah, but they got it right in this one, yeah. I think. Yeah, but I do think she would scream for help. I really do. But then in the making of, what I learned was apparently Rose McGowan is a terrible screamer. Like, she's really, really bad at screaming. So they did everything they could to make her not scream in her death scene, which was a problem for them. Oh, weird. Interesting. So yeah, I think that's really the reason for it. But yeah, she crawls through the cat flap or the dog flap or whatever, and then Ghostface and retracts the garage door and it squishes her. There were a couple extra shots here that got cut. It's a pretty cool kill. It's yeah, a cool kill. pretty cool. 
And it's not only really sort of gruesome bit, you get that brief close-up of her modelled face sort of crushing. Yeah. Which Kill number nasty. four. Kill number four. Yeah, and then Ghostface. I love, like, at the end of this, Ghostface just, like, looks at her and then just heads back to the party. <laughs> just mm-hmm. opens the door and just slinks up. All right. Maybe he took the beers. Maybe he picked the beers up and took them back in. One bit in their little struggle prior to her running through the cafe that I just thought was funny was when she he runs at her and he flip she flips him over her and yes. he like <laughs> flips into the stair that mini stairwell going back into the house kind of like crumples. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's weird. a goofy, almost slapstick fights with Ghostface yeah. in this movie, which again I think makes him not as scary, but mm-hmm. I'm sure. And then the party yeah, breaks up for curfew, which I feel is mostly because they couldn't, didn't have the money maybe to have that many extras for 21 days. I don't know. But it's kind of weird. They all just go home. It's like, this is a very early party. Yeah. And then Billy turns up. So there are a few of, who are left. Are they meant to be just sleeping over then, do you think? Or they just don't give a shit about the curfew? I don't know. I think they're just wild boys, aren't they? They don't care. Just crazy kids. Yeah. Billy turns up and him and, and Sydney head up to Matthew Lillard's parents' room for some chatting and some kissy-kissy. And yeah, the, the difference for me here between Johnny Depp and Ulrich is so enormous. Like, it's yeah. it's like just his lead-in to getting her to have sex with him. And he's like, this is life, it's not a movie. So she says, this is life, it's not a movie. He says, sure it is, Sid, it's all one great big movie and you could pick your genre. And then she does this terrible porno line. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, I don't believe, I really don't believe this at all. Like, I don't believe in her head state she would have sex with him. I really mm-hmm. don't. Particularly considering immediately after they've had sex, she basically figures out, oh, he might be the killer again. Yeah. I don't know. And she's so like, I don't even believe she'd go to this party, but no matter go to the party and then have sex for the first time. It's like, that's not the time you do it. And she wouldn't want to do it in like Matthew Lillard's parents' room. She would want to do it somewhere private. And... I don't know. You're in high school. You make bad choices. Well, what's interesting with this, okay, so when you're watching this movie, they tell the rules and then they break the rules a bunch of times. Yeah, because Mm -hmm. she's no longer a virgin, so she can die. And that is a point of the movie. So, like, uh, watching, reading documentaries and watching documentaries, a point for them is, okay, this movie's breaking the rules that it's laying out, but it doesn't all the time as well. It also follows the rules a lot. So I do feel, if I'm going to critique the writing here, it is a little unfocused in what are you really trying to say? You know, like, it is both playing against the tropes and for the tropes at the same time. So I don't really feel it's like carving out something new necessarily in that regard, other than they all know what the tropes are, um, which is shown here because the leftovers of the party are watching the first Halloween film and they don't know the rules. So Randy explains to them about the rules. Number one, never have sex. Sex equals death. Number two, never drink or do drugs. Number three, never say I'll be right back. They're the only rules he knows apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there are more rules, but okay. <laughs> and then Dewey's asking Gail whether if she wants to join him looking for a car that's been reported in the bushes down the road. So I'm guessing these are the kids who left, saw a car in the bushes, right? And then just rang at him. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. One of them also had a cellular telephone. But yeah. why would those kids... I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess, yeah. Never mind. I was thinking about the second set of kids that left the boys after they found out that the principal was murdered. Right. Because, like, why would they care? They wouldn't... Care. Yeah, yeah that's know. funny. They find out he's murdered and been gutted and hung from the goalpost at school, and they're <laughs> yeah. like, "Yeah, <laughs> let's go take a look before they take him off." <laughs> Fucking terror. Yeah. 
Yeah, terrible. Really terrible. So terrible. Yeah, Sydney and Philly, what they're getting hot, they intercut this with them watching Halloween and, and commenting on stuff like, here comes the obligatory tit shot. And then they yeah. cut to Nev Campbell with Billy blocking. So yeah, we don't get any boob shot. It's I thought also, that was fun. It is, but it's also kind of weird to like call stuff out. Again, like this film wants to play the tropes, but not when it doesn't want. Mm. And I, I would like to, you're like you're saying Alex earlier, I think, like you give him Wes Craven credit for it. And maybe, but also I don't believe for a second that Nev Campbell's agents would have let her get naked in this film. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of like, I don't know. It's like, do you really want to call that out when you're not, when you're not doing either? You're not going against all the rules, but you're also not fulfilling the rules. You're kind of doing whichever you want to whenever you feel like it. We could have just had a big penis shot instead, you know? Yeah, here comes the Greek tit shot, and then we just cut across and we just <laughs> get a penis. Your Billy Loom was just standing naked in front of him, looking that, all evil. That would have been brilliant. That would have definitely broken the conventions. <laughs> so, yeah, they've all left the party pretty much. Randy's watching the film alone. Gail and Dewey jump to avoid the idiot jocks who are just driving by them. And then come across Sydney's father's car. So it's all pointing to him. Now, I'm presuming you both remembered the ending of this. We have the disadvantage of we have seen this before. So mm-hmm. you remember who the killers were throughout, mm-hmm. I'm guessing? I did, yeah. yeah. Do you remember the first time you watched it? Did you ever think it might be the father? or? I don't remember. I don't remember either. I think I vaguely did a little bit, but yeah, I don't know. I definitely didn't think there were two. That was definitely the big twist for sure. So yeah, as we said, Sid and Billy have had sex, and then she suddenly realizes, hang on, who did Billy call when he was arrested? He could have been the one to have wrung her that night. Which again, have this thought before you have sex, right? Not after. Yeah. But then the door opens and in walks the killer who then stabs Billy, who turns in this ridiculous way and reaches out to her. (laughs) Which is blood everywhere. Really stupid. And we get another chase all around the house. She hides in the attic. And it gets pushed out of a window, landing on a boat. And then, yeah, sees Rose McGowan's dead. A boat? <sighs> that would have killed is, her back. Yeah, because you would have landed on, like... The seats yeah, and stuff, right? You don't put a pad on a boat, do you? <laughs> no, it's just a tarpaulin, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and exactly. then underneath that is just, like, seats and steering wheels and the glass yeah. thing, like... Yep. It's not she cushiony. Rolls off. Nope. Gets up. Maybe the next film she'll just be like suffering from severe back problems. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> She's gonna feel it when she hits thirty. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. These things come back to haunt you, kids. Don't jump out of windows onto boats. Oh wait, <laughs> did you know Billy Loomis? Not personally. Named. Well, did you know that in Psycho, the boyfriend's name was Samuel Lewis? Samuel Loomis, and in Halloween, the doctor's name was Samuel Lo- Lo- Loomis. I knew the doctor one from Halloween, but yeah, not the huh? one. I forgot the psycho one. I need a Dr. One from Halloween. Well, now you know both. (laughs) The chronology of Loomis. Loomis. Yeah, they really, really, really... This film really loves Halloween. Like, there's so many mirrors between Halloween and this film. That's fun. Which is interesting, because Wes Craven obviously did, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a very different film and sort of a competitor. So Randy's telling Jamie Jamie Lee Curtis on the TV to watch out, because Michael Myers is right behind her. While Ghostface is standing right behind him. Oh, the irony. And his name, yeah, I love that. I love that his name's Jamie. His yeah. real name's Jamie. He's telling <laughs> Jamie Curtis that, yeah, it's, that was cool. Oh. Very, very postmodern. <laughs> and then Sydney screams outside and Ghostface gets distracted. <laughs> and just wanders off. He's literally about to kill him. 
And then Sid gets to the news van and then she's with the news guy and they're watching the delayed feed. So then they're watching so what we cool. just watched. And then they start shouting at Jamie Kennedy, who's shouting at Jamie Lee Curtis on the TV. He's behind you. He's behind you. Really fucking great. And then the cameraman realizes, oh shit, where did he go? And I love when they're watching this, the room as if they're going to be able to tell from that room. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you don't know where he went. And then he goes outside to look and gets his throat slit. And Sydney gets stabbed in the shoulder, I think, but that doesn't really come up again. Yeah. Seems fine. Yeah. And Dewey and Gail return. Dewey heads into the house with some ridiculous acting. He's like moving from room to room with his gun out. He's scared, okay? He said uh, he always thinks that Dewey, David Arquette plays him as if Dewey thinks he's Dirty Harry. Like that's uh, that's right. what he thinks is going on inside his head. Yeah, they're calling out for Mr. Prescott. And then Gail heads to the newsman, uh, but Kenny, the cam- sorry, the newsman, but Kenny, the cameraman, is gone. So she's ringing oh, yeah, the police. Kenny is kill six. Kill six. Mm-hmm. Not bad. Not bad for a first film body count so far. Mm-hmm. So she's ringing the police when Randy suddenly shows up um, and she just mashes him in the head with a phone. Which <laughs> I think is pretty funny. <laughs> and then Kenny's body just lands on her windshield. So, and she's driving off anyway with blood and everything. And then she swerves to avoid hitting Sydney and then runs her car down a hill, striking a tree. And we're meant to think she's dead, I think, from car crash. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Sydney ends up in the house. Dewey's been stabbed in the back with more over the top Dewey acting. <laughs> he just sort of stumbles out. And then Ghostface appears. He loves cleaning that knife, right? He's cleaning the knife so much in this movie. It's mm-hmm. like the thing he does. And she gets into the police van. And we have a cool little scene. I like this scene. This is like, there's quite a lot of chase scenes for Neve Campbell and Ghostface in this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one's pretty cool. When she's in there. And then Randy appears, stabbed. And then Lillard appears, crying inaudibly. <laughs> and they're just screaming at each other. Pointing out just saying, saying that it's the other one, basically. So Matthew Lillard's saying that it's Randy. And Randy's saying it's Matthew Lillard. She doesn't know which one to trust. So she locks them both out and says, fuck you both. And just goes to the house on her own. So surely Randy's dead then, right? He should be dead. If he's locked outside with Matthew Lillard. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get confused a little bit with what's happening here? They're doing a lot of just throwing people around a lot, trying to get, like, make us guess as an audience. Mm-hmm. Well, but also he doesn't have any, maybe uh, he doesn't have his knife or whatever. Maybe that's why. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows yeah, nowadays? But Billy comes stumbling down the stairs, bloodied, and lets Randy and Stu into the house. Um, and then he takes the gun and shoots Randy. Turns around to reveal that the blood is fake. Saying he was using corn syrup, the same as they used in Carrie and most horror films. Billy was only pretending to be stabbed, and he was aided by his accomplice, Stu. Both of them are killers. Here's the what? big twist in the movie. I do remember the cinema was pretty... Like, I could hear the, the audible gasp. Of two killers? <laughs> no one expects two killers. Yeah. And yeah, uh, this is where the film completely changes. So now Ghostface is gone, and we have these two kids, Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich. As the murderers. And they're going to do a double thing here. Now, I don't know if you guys noticed it. I only noticed it on this viewing because I'm paying proper attention for these podcasts. What are you saying? We're not? <laughs> no, no. But I mean, like, I don't <laughs> when I'm normally watching it. But I don't know, like, <laughs> if this is something that stuck out for you. But Sid's asking him, like, why did you guys do all of this? And, and Skeet's, like, being super evil. And he's like, oh, it's, it's a lot scarier when there's no motive skits. Yeah, no motive, no motive. Okay, let me tell you my motive. <laughs> and then yeah. he tells her the motive. <laughs> Did that seem weird to you guys? 
Well, it's just stupid. Yeah, because like, <laughs> because there was a bit when they're in the video store earlier where Randy's like, it's the millennium. Motives are incidental. And then so we get to that point and he's like, yeah, there's no motive. And then yeah, two seconds later, he's like, actually, here it is. It did seem weird. Yeah. Like after all that kind of setup and stuff. So, and I looked up about this. There is a reason for it. Because to me, it was just like, well, that's weird. Uh, but Kevin Williamson had notes from people who liked there being no note motive and then people who really thought that they needed a motive. So in his eyes, he succeeded by doing both. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, which I feel, no, one of them negates the other one. So yeah. <laughs> you didn't do both. You can't just say something and then change but it. But then it just shows that he's psycho, like he's psychotic. Sure. And I do like the motive. So he reveals that he was responsibility, responsible for killing Sydney's mother because his, uh, Sydney's mother was having an affair with his father. And that was the reason why his parents that we heard about earlier split up. And he murdered Mrs. Prescott out of revenge. And then they revealed that they've kidnapped Mr. Prescott, who is tied up in a, in a closet. Because they're going to basically frame it all on him. It's a year after his wife's death. Um, and they're going to make it look like he attacked them and then killed everybody else. And at which point, Sydney got killed. So here is where Matthew Lillard's crazy over-the-top performance, for me, I like because... I don't think he has a real motive and it, I like that it becomes then he's just like this weird, maybe just easily suggestible kid that's mm-hmm. just like, that is a little unstable and kind of going along for the ride without necessarily grasping the full consequences of everything that's going on. Like for me, it justifies the over the top and weirdness that there's like a instability within him. That's how I read it. Yeah. Christina? I agree. Can you back me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I did like I did really like this part. You just saw another side to him and he's like kind of sweet and like uh very fragile and Yeah, yeah. And just like a puppy dog. Mhm. So I don't know. I I like this turn. And, and one of the lines Is that what about you him, asked imp- me? Yeah. So like a line <laughs> that he uh improvised here that Wes, Crazy, Wes Craven laughed at and kept in was, uh, what are my mom and dad going to think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, my mom and dad are going to be so upset. Apparently that was improvised. I mean, I loved the way he reacted to being stabbed and how like it really hurt. And I love the way he picked up the phone. You know, he was in so much pain. And then all of a sudden, you know, he picked up the phone and he was kind of excited about picking up the phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I really liked his choices. Well, okay, so like, I think we can all agree he's crazy, crazy, crazy over the top. Yeah. But the discussion is just whether we're enjoying that or not. I'm mm-hmm. enjoying it. This is my You're thing not. is like, I, well, no, I enjoy it as, okay, this is subversive. This is something different. It's not what you expect. Like, it's probably more realistic in a weird way. Like, I enjoy it intellectually for all those reasons. But my problem is everything you just said from he's, you know, kind of cute, kind of uh, sensitive like a puppy dog is not what I want from my killers at the end of a slasher movie. Like all but of those he's words. completely opposite of Billy. Yeah, but Bi- the problem is that'd be fine if one of them was actually scary. But Billy is basically exactly as he as he's been for the entire film. But he's just you know now covered in blood and slightly more hunched. And I just find <laughs> like more hunched. he is he's just like you know little sort of the, he's just in his weird little hunch. And I have a personal pet peeve as I talked about on our last uh, show, The Purge to do with kids, teenagers, 
being the murderers in films when they're just annoying teenagers. When it's just like, you're just a little brat, you know? You're just a fucking mm-hmm. rich kid brat. And it really, all the fear's gone for me because they're just nauseating. And Billy is the quintessential nauseating teen brat murderer, you know? And the acting's not good. His delivery is just like so over the top. He can only play it one way. And I haven't been conned with him for the entire film. So I might find it easier with Matthew Lillard if I had someone I'm actually scared of on the, you know, playing the other part. But I don't. Instead, I just have two teenagers who are nauseating for me for different reasons. One, because he's so 90s goofy. And the other one, because he's so 90s emo. And maybe I could take that for about three minutes. But I find these endings in these 90s slasher films going too long. Like, I love I Know What You Did Last Summer. I don't want to spoil that movie. But when you get to the ending and you find out who the killer is, as soon as I see faces, it's less scary. Like, it's just less mm-hmm. scary for me. And particularly if it's just, oh, it's a teenager. Like, oh, it's not, I don't know. It's not scary for me. Unless you play it very, very true to life, you know? So my problem here is just really how long it goes on for. And that they're both over the top in their own ways. Yeah. And I do struggle with it, I have to say. Because I love so far that it's managed to be funny but it has also been scary like Ghostface kept dignity <laughs> and once the master off there's no do- dignity for Ghostface anymore but I do like that Sydney kind of turns to turn the table she rings them like you said does the Ghostface voice but it's too brief I'd like to see a big section of this and instead it's for like 30 seconds she does this to try and turn the tables on them but she quite easily dispatches of Matthew Lillard putting a TV on his face <sighs> Killed, literally, by media, which I think is kind of nice. And then, yeah, has a fight with, uh, with old Skeet. I like that she goes and hides in the closet and puts on the ghost face costume. Yeah. yeah that's true. <laughs> and then stabs him with an umbrella. Pretty good. And they're intercutting that with, yeah, like that's, again, from Halloween, the hiding in the closet and the stabbing. But then again, interrupted by Gail Weathers, who returns, armed with Dewey's gun, Gail forgets to switch off the gun safety, however. So then, a little struggle ensues. Wow, what? I've got stuff written down here that doesn't make any sense to me. They leave Sydney alone. Guess what happens? Sydney runs off. Oh, yeah, of course. Sorry. <laughs> I was yeah, like, what? with the dad. Yeah, yeah. They bring yeah. out the dad. And then they get into this stuff. And guess what? Yeah, they leave Sydney alone. And then they turn around surprised that she left. It's like, what do you expect she's going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so this is where she turns the tables on them. Lillard's getting all woozy, giving yeah, these lines you're talking about. I think I'm dying. <laughs> Meanwhile, Billy's looking for Sydney in the pillows. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't you notice that. that. <laughs> he goes through to the, to the sofa and just starts cutting up pillows. That's so right, Maybe yeah. she's in here. <laughs> yeah, and Randy's still alive. Says, I never thought I'd be so happy to be a virgin. <laughs> Billy knocks him unconscious, I think, because he's sort of down for another 30 seconds and does nothing. And then Gail eventually shoots uh, Billy. Um, and then they have that moment, which again, in the making of, they're very proud of this. Like, this is the moment when the supposedly dead killer comes back to life for one last scare. And then he does. So Sid shoots him and says, not in my movie. But, but he, he just did. did. I know. I thought that too. But he just did. Like maybe if like, the supposedly dead killer comes back to life for one last kill, then that makes sense. But for one last scare, it's like, no, he got the scare in. <laughs> and then you mm-hmm. so this is what i mean it's like i do feel it's a bit if i'm going to be critical i do think it's modeled like it's it's trying to comment on this stuff but it's not really wanting to break the rules because he loves them like kevin williamson loves all of this dumb stuff and i love it too but he's trying to seem like the movie's smarter than those rules and i just don't know that it is Sidney's dad's still life really given the stick we don't really see much to do with him 
And then all ends well as Gail reports outside the house immediately that it's all been the scene of what seemed to be some kind of real-life scary movie. End credits, and we get one last fast edit of Ghostface with some allowed jump scare. Yep. Yeah. Which is cheap, but I kind of like it just because I like Ghostface. I don't like the kids who are Ghostface, but I like Ghostface. So this might be a reoccurring theme we're going to get as we go through this franchise with me. There you go, guys. That's the movie Scream. We did it. Yay! 90s clap. A couple of things, because I didn't get to sprinkle everything throughout. A, kind of a big one. Where's... So the DP, you might have noticed, I don't even know if it changed. Like, they were in the end of the film. They were in those 21 days of shooting. And then they're watching some... And this is, again, the guy that Wes Craven's worked before with on New Nightmare. And he turned around to him while they're watching some rushes and said, all of today's rushes are out of focus. So Wes and the producers <laughs> told the DP that he had to fire his entire department. And the DP said, well, if you're going to fire them, why don't you get a new DP as well? Which they then said, that's a good idea. Fuck. So he was fired just a few days from the end of production. And they brought in a guy called Peter Deming, who's now, I think he's the DP on part two, actually. Dang. To complete the movie. Very, very strange. And the DP's still a little bit confused about it. He's not sure what happened behind closed doors. Yeah, and Dewey, as we mentioned earlier, he was meant to die. But they loved him so much during shooting that they did a safety shot of him being wheeled out as he is at the end of this movie on a stretcher, still alive. And it's really sweet. If you see David Arquette in interviews with this, he's so humbled. He's like nearly in tears. He's like, that one decision on that one day to get a safety shot, which they then ended up leaving in, changed his entire life. Like it changed his whole life that he got to come back for the sequel. And so he's, yeah, very, very grateful to them. What else happened then? Yeah, we talked about the comedy thing with the cuts afterwards. Uh, Yeah, Bob Weinstein, he didn't like the title. He wanted it to be called Scream uh, because he was listening to the Michael Jackson song Scream at the time. (laughs) 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 Um, And thought that was perfect. Wes was really not happy about it. There was a lot of pushback on it, but he's happy about it now. He says, thank God that Bob won that fight. Because if it had been called Scary Movie, it wouldn't have been the same. It opened at Christmas time, and it made just $6.4 million for its first weekend, which was fine, but not great. So everyone was writing stuff about it being dead on arrival. Uh, news articles were saying Wes Craven is washed up. And the whole, like, well, a bunch of the producers and director went to a cinema, and it was just empty. So they were kind of down about it that first weekend. Now, it's very hard for people, if you're not involved in the industry, to understand. But the first weekend, that's your big opener. It will go down from there. However, with Scream, the second week, it made the same money. No drop whatsoever, which is a huge deal. The third weekend, it made $10 million. Wow. Then it took off, and critics and fans loved it. Word of mouth built and built, and it ended up bringing in $173 million worldwide. That's not adjusted for inflation, which would nearly double that. It spent 31 weeks in cinemas. And for a long time, it was the highest grossing horror film of all time. Cool. And it was a really, like, it's such an interesting story to see how that would have happened, you know. First weekend must have really bummed them out. And then that second weekend of realizing, oh shit, it's not dropping. And then just built. Very exciting. It didn't come out in the UK until about five, six months later. That's when I saw it. And yeah, it rebirthed horror for the 90s. Slashes were suddenly big again. The boom didn't last for quite as long, really, in, in the 90s. But we immediately got I Know What You Did Last Summer, 
which is actually written by Kevin Williamson as well. They fast greenlit Scream 2, which was to come out the next year, also written by Kevin Williamson. He was a busy boy. They did Urban Legend, they did Valentine, they did The Faculty, they did like so many 90s -hmm. irreverent postmodern kind of slasher films. And at the very end of the original script that Kevin Williamson pitched was a five-page treatment for the sequel. So not only did this fucker write an entire brilliant movie in three days, he also wrote a five-page treatment for the sequel and put it at the back of the script. Brilliant. Wow. So they knew they had a franchise. And for anyone thinking, okay, part two was just a quick cash-in because it did come out a year later, you could say it was from the studio point of view, but Kevin Williamson knew where he wanted to take things. He may not have written the script, but he knew what was going to happen. And we will be dealing with Scream 2 next week. But I'm excited. Until we get there, guys, I think I know where this is heading, but I want to know, did you guys enjoy Scream? And Alex, I know you've seen the sequel, so maybe trying to raise that from your brain a little bit, but Christina, you haven't. Let's start with you. What would you want to see with a, with a Scream sequel? Uh, but first of all, did you enjoy this? Uh, first of all, I did enjoy it. I loved it. I had so much fun watching it, and it just made me think, like, why haven't I been watching this movie every every year for Halloween? Like, it could be my go-to movie for Halloween. It was just so fun to watch. It is better than I remembered it, so I'm a big fan. And I'm so happy that I got to watch it again, because, you know, honestly, um, if we didn't do this podcast, I probably would have never watched it again. You're like, welcome. on my own, you know, I wouldn't have been like, oh, let's rent this movie right now. But now I just might rent it every every year. You remember that next time you're in the doldrums of George Romero films and you're like, why are <laughs> I watching these films Because <laughs> every now and then something good creeps through. <laughs> so yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think it's a great movie. I would suggest everybody to watch it. <laughs> I don't know. what I don't really know what to expect for the sequel. Well, what do you want from a sequel? Like, where would you want to go? Do you want to see the same people back? Do you want to see, like, you know what? I do want to see the same people back. Is the same, are the same people back? I can confirm some of the same people are back, yeah. Huh, interesting. (laughs) Well, like, I don't know where I wanted to go because they're dead. So would it be, like, copycat killers? Or was there a third killer that we don't know about? Nah. I don't know where it's going to go. So it's going to be, uh, you know, I have no expectations. (laughs) perfect you're ready for a horror franchise and it's still in the 90s 90s so i'm pretty stoked about that i do love the 90s yeah so yeah i would like i would like to do this entire podcast channel just about 90s slasher films to be honest but again most of them don't have trilogies urban legends three films i know what you did last summer three films this is the only one with four films i think i'm going to go back and watch i know what you did last summer yeah i want to watch that too because i think i would really like it you should watch all three I remember I it very, very I remember one. very little of it. The third one went straight to DVD, uh, but it was actually directed by a female. It was one of the first slashes to be directed by a female. Jeez. Yeah, not great, the third one. <laughs> Alex, what about you, buddy? Yeah, I, I was thinking about it and immediately after watching it yesterday. You know, I, I've often wondered when there would be a time when I would think of the 90s and think of films that, defined that period because it's you know i have a feel of that for like the 80s and you can go back and and watching this yesterday i was suddenly like this is this is so of its time and it's it just feels like that now and i don't know it's really yeah really really cool i really enjoyed it it was a great film to go back and watch it didn't 
you know, as much as it defined that era, it, it still felt relevant. I wasn't scared at all. And I don't know if that's because I've seen it or if it's because I've watched more horrors than when I first watched this and I'm maybe know what scares me a bit more. I think I'm, I get scared more by sort of supernatural, spooky ghost type things or, or like confirm, yes, footage you stuff. Yeah, you I mean, you didn't seen pull me. your hoodie over for this one and peek no, out. No, because I, I said that. I was watching it at the end. I was like, that didn't scare me, Bethany. I don't, I don't think it scares me. Uh, and she's like, horror movies scare you. Like, you know, usually you're tucked deep into your hoodie. And I'm like, yeah, but that's, that's for like paranormal activity or found, other found footage films or supernatural like roller coaster ones. Like when we watched Annabelle Creation, I was definitely just peeking through the tiny little pocket hole I make. <laughs> so that kind of stuff scares me. But this I found very, it's just exciting. It was a real throwback to me, like I said at the start, for for that time period and that style. Yeah, like that that whodunit style of slasher films. And even though I kind of knew the twist, there was that, that anticipation of like, ah, oh, this is what I remember of going to the movies of like these kind of setups, all these red herrings and then finding out at the end. I would definitely recommend this to anyone because I think – for that very reason that I think it defines the nineties slasher. I think it's, 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 it's the film that kind of set, set it into that sort of path and set like the motion of all those films that you mentioned. So I, for that reason, I think it's very important. And I think there's just some really cool fun bits in it. It's hard to disassociate where I think it would go. Although I, I kind of don't remember all of the second film. I am, pretty much almost certain I know where it goes and who the killer is and it's hard to disassociate from that I think if I am trying to keep a blank slate yeah it'd be like we'll bring back uh, Nev Campbell and then it'd probably be like a copycat killer scenario and one more final thing I really liked Nev Campbell as a final girl but she's probably not my favorite and if we're going Wes Craven then I still really like um, Nancy from from um, Heather Langenkamp. Street. I thought she was cool. Again, which in we're quite person. controversial in liking her. But yeah, we like her. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, go and see it. Highly recommend. So, so good. I'm with, I mean, yeah, I'm with you both you guys. Like anything I'm saying to be, you know, negative about this is because I have to be critical. You know, we're trying to discuss it in that way. And I do have problems with it. Like I do. Like I, I for me, it doesn't work as well. Once I get the kids revealed, Dewey is a bit too goofy for me. I still love him. But I think it could really end a little bit, and it does stray a little bit too much into comedy for me. Like I, I that opening scene is how I want the whole movie to be, basically, you know. And I, from if my memory is correct, we're never going to hit that level again of fear. You know, it's going to play more and more and more to the popcorn fun, the comedy factors. Enjoy these cartoony characters as we progressively get throughout the sequels, which can be fun in a whole different way. Because I always say, for me with horror films, only one or of at least one of two things i need to either be scared or i need to be having a good time i don't need to be grossed out i don't need like you know and that's all i need and with scream the first scene i'm both scared and having a good time with the rest of the movie i'm just having a good time and i'm fine with that it's 90 slashes this is actually i agree with you alex this is the quintessential 90 slasher it's an incredibly important film i think anyone that's remotely interested in horror should check it out and i think it still transitions well i think the directing is still really good i don't think it feels too antiquated other than fashion and some of the dialogue. 
but I think the cinematic style of it is still good. Like I think it still works yeah. really well, um, which is a welcome, sure. which I was really surprised with. It's probably my third favorite '90s slasher film, to be honest. But Ooh, can, can we hear the rest of the list yet? Yeah, sure. I well, none of them are in the series, so yes. Um, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's my third favorite one, but I get why it's everyone's favorite. Like I get, I'm you know, I, maybe I'm just being annoying by saying that, but it's just by personal preference. I respect this one maybe the most. You know, this one's my third. My second is actually I know what you did last summer, but by nice. a very small margin. And it's purely because it's more of a straight laced horror film. Like it's not trying to be too funny yeah. or postmodern. It still has plenty of problems. And I think there's loads that Scream does a lot better than I know what you did last summer. But it's just more to my personal preference is that kind of film. Mm-hmm. And I actually really like the twist in that, the backstory in that when you get to it. I think it's actually really smart. I think the script's actually really, really clever. And my absolute favorite 90s slasher film by far is, is H2O, which is Halloween 7, which is directed by Steve Miner. He did Friday the 13th, part two and three. And Lake Placid, and it bring, brought back Jamie Lee Curtis. And we'll be getting to that at some point in the fairly near future. Spoilers. But that's absolutely my favorite 90s slasher. Nice. But yeah, I fucking love this film. I think it's great. I'm very excited to be going back to the other ones. I'm very excited. There's one in particular out of the next three that I'm excited to go back to. Um, but I'm not going to let you guys know which one. Which Don't tell them. I know. I enjoyed quite a bit. What would I want the next from it? Again, I don't know. I'm too deep into it. Like, I, I would want it to get more serious. I would want it to be, okay, we've done the postmodern commentary. We can do that then, but in a broader scope, you know? Like, okay, mm-hmm. let's do something where, sure, we play up to these tropes and then invert them or something. Like, really think about that. But they're making it a year later. It's hard, as we've seen many times with these franchise retrospectives. When you make a horror film and then it's a success and you make one and it's got to be out 12 months later, that's a crazy, crazy schedule to be on. So just getting it out is a bit of a miracle anyway. But yeah, we'll deal with that next week. I would definitely recommend it to people. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, guys, for joining me in the beginning of this new journey. If you want to support us, we do all of this for free. We don't do any sponsorship. We don't do any ads. And I keep getting fucking emails every week telling us to monetize this. And we're not doing it because we're crazy. So please do support us the only way that you can, which is going onto your podcast, going on iTunes in particular, and typing in Weird Geeks. Subscribe to us. Rate us. And if you want, leave a nice comment or a mean comment, whatever. But uh, it's the only way you can help us. Helps people learn about us. Helps people know that we exist. And you can go to weirdgeeks.com. You can go to all our social media. You can also go to all of our old podcasts. We've done Friday 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Child's Play, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Ramirez Living Dead, Danny Boyle, Star Wars, and a regular show just called Geeks, which happens whenever we feel like it, where we talk about topical games, topical movies, and life. That's a thing. Ah. Was that like a Flash Gordon thing? <laughs> <laughs> life yeah. Oh. yeah it saved every one of us <laughs> yeah also if you're on weirdgeeks.com click on the little black emblem you can head on over to a publisher called we are tessellate and they are a production company right out of london la and tokyo making feature films we just made a first one called starfish i'm trying to make a slash film right now and also what else do we do other things video game apps are coming we've got some short films we've got some music videos some music and that's where you can actually support us by buying the products that we sell. But that's really going to be changing a lot over the next few months. I'm Mr. Alway on all the social medias, M-R-A-L-W-H-I-T-E, and also on the Xboxes. Uh, what about you guys? I am Alexander Chard, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R-C-H-A-R-D, <laughs> on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Fuck uh, not, you! Yeah, Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I am at underscore hi Christina on Instagram and Twitter. Can you spell that? 
And if people are lucky, you'll do some more Insta story questions, Christina, and they can ask you whatever they want. (laughs) (laughs) You can answer three. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys very much for joining me. I'm excited to be talking about Scream 2 next week. We will, weirdly, Christina, the only other horror channel stuff you've been on is Romero's Living Dead. We got to go for an entire franchise with the same director, and you're going to be doing it again. Oh, cool. This is the only other franchise that we've covered, Wes Craven. Wes, Wes Anderson was doing this shit. It would be a very different movie. <laughs> that was a joke. Sure. God, guys. This is the only other franchise I can think of where the same director's done all the films. So that's weird. It's so you're right. on both did Kevin Williamson or whatever his name is, did he write all of these films? Yes, he did. That's cool. Oh, Don, he's the that's new great. Don Mancini. <laughs> he's the new, I think he wrote three, didn't he? I know he wrote two and four. Pretty sure he wrote three. We'll double check. Tune in next week to find out. Until then, Woo. we're out. Geeks. Geeks.